Thanks for your calls tonight, Avon. We're playing soft rock for a busy world. I'm Delilah on the new B105.7. Welcome back to the Be There in 5 podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. It is Wednesday morning. I am re-recording this intro. You know, I'm a bit of a night owl. I like to consider myself a member of the Midnight Society, as the kids say from Are You Afraid of the Dark, the reboot that doesn't need to happen because the Quicksilver guy that drew a cue on the wall from another dimension still haunts my dreams. But, you know, at night, I, I record too often, and then I listen back to it, and it's a real, it's a real Eeyore sitch. I'm, I'm like, hi, listen, or don't, whatever. And I'm just like, what are you doing? Like, why are you so sad? I, I, I'm very like down and out and nervous about the podcast. I think when night falls. And anyway, so yeah, here I am re-recording from the beyond, bright and early in the morning, as we culturally all now know to be rise and shine. That wasn't my worst work. Not my best either. I actually think I referenced Rise and Shine another time because I recorded this earlier. And uh, I don't know. I think it's in the context of a swine flu joke. Honestly, I regret everything. But, you know, today we're going to do something different because uh, today the Kate Lila episode is going to be the primary episode this week instead of a bonus. And I will tell you why. I also do want to uh, caveat, I will spend the first like 20 minutes or so uh, waxing poetic coming to the defense of the Duke and Dutch of Sus because I think Harry and Meghan are having a bit of a week and I feel like we need to take a step back and be, you know, go a little easy on them and I'll explain why. If you want to get directly to the questions, it's called, I think maybe like minute 25. I'm not really sure. One, if you're new here, um, you know, yes, Kate Lila does not, does not roll off the tongue. It is quite poor, in fact, as a name. But at this point, it's kind of almost so bad it works. And I call the episodes that I do where I answer listener hotline call-in questions, uh, Kate Lila, after my favorite uh, radio talent on um, adult light contemporary radio. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, while I don't really possess her soothing dulcet tone and wise, you know, way of the world, I do like to be prompted and I do like to hear what issues you guys are working through. And I am consistently fascinated with the range you provide me. And for that, I'm grateful. I'm honored you even entrust me to give you advice. And I want to have this as the main episode for a couple of reasons. One, I'm, I'm a bit behind on questions. There were a lot of call-ins, and I want to get to as many as I can. And this would be a longer-form episode that kind of equates to what a normal week episode would be, not a bonus. But also... You know, I've been very lucky in the past several months to be able to monetize this podcast. And it's, you know, even though it's such a welcome and necessary evolution of the podcast that I, I certainly needed, uh, it never was what this podcast was about. I don't want to be a machine that's always just reeling off products to you. And specifically for these Kate Lila episodes, I want to maintain the kind of sanctity and purity of it. In terms of, you know, when you start working with advertisers, while great, it does it shifts a little bit because you have a contract, you have a deadline, an episode has to be out, and you have to guarantee a certain number of downloads. And I'd be lying if, as a creative, that doesn't kind of get in your head a little bit about like, well, what can I talk about or how can I make sure that I'm not under delivering or disappointing anyone or whatever it is. So yeah, it's kind of like I, I and anytime I'm uh, working on a project, I try to diversify it with things that are purely creative and things that, you know, blend business and creativity because I think burnout is inevitable and you have to be very mindful of it. 
And even though I love doing the podcast, period, all facets of it, this is certainly where I feel the most relaxed and is a safe space for me. And I've just been thinking about how, you know, it's so cool that now that these this airspace, these minutes have value and how great would it be to be able to use it to bring the world value in a different way and to share a lot of the nonprofits and causes and organizations and great work you guys are doing. And if anything, just to hopefully raise awareness and get more people involved. While I don't want GoFundMes or direct uh, fundraising, I do want to hear about the nonprofits, the charities, the philanthropy work you do. And I think, you know, there's there's the household names of, of philanthropy that everybody knows and that you can get involved with. But when it comes to location based or, um, you know, niche problem or more specific types of work, I think the awareness is the name of the game. And I think that things will tug at people's heartstrings and really strike a nerve and, and incite them to want to get involved. But they have to hear about it first. And if this can be a place where I talk about the things you guys care about and get more people involved to make the world a better place, that's all I could ever ask for. So I'm going to read through some of the nonprofits and whatnot you guys sent in. You can send them to podcast at be there in five.com. And I'm going to read them on this, these Kate Lila episodes for as long as I can, at least. I'm not currently like working with a specific network, so I have total creative freedom. I don't know that I'll always have that. I can't imagine anybody would like want to onboard me and I'm like, BT dubs, uh, you can't make any money off of part of my content. Don't think that would fly. But we're, we're trying to figure out what direction to take this podcasting, guys. It's very day by day. If um, you're new here, you might want to go back a few eps because I feel like some of the calls are like inside jokes. You know what I mean? Like, you're going to be like, what are, like, why do you guys care so much about muffins? You know, I just don't want you to be turned off by not knowing what's going on. I'll try to provide context where I can. But, uh, yeah, if you're new here, welcome. If you came back, God bless. I am so lucky. Anytime somebody comes back, I am constantly nervous people aren't going to. Unless I'm just talking about the hottest topic under the sun, which I couldn't even tell you what that is this week besides Rise and Shine and Meghan Markle, obviously, you know, trying not to cry on ITV which I've shared a lot of my thoughts at length and be there in five totally casual breezy Facebook group, which I encourage you to look up and um, answer the questions and apply to join. Cause that's honestly, when a lot of things go down that are more, um, I don't know, detailed. Sometimes I just will do commentary on Facebook. Sometimes it'll just be on Instagram. Depends on what I'm feeling that day, but it's nice to engage with people in um, a more concentrated format where I can get your direct feedback. Cause it's very weird with episodes. I just like talk into the abyss. Then I'm like, okie doke. There it is. Like, it's nowhere for you to really comment. It's kind of an interesting thing. Um, but, you know, I have a lot of thoughts on Meg. I'm Team Megan. You guys know that. I, I think that, um, you know, you can have all the money and the riches, the power, the privilege in the world. And while it should be acknowledged and there is a level of tone deafness and off-putting uh, potential of your message that needs to be very, very heavily vetted, I think that given that she's an American... Um, and not a born and bred royal, not a born and bred, you know, even aristocrat. Or I guess Kate Middleton was, they say she was middle class, but like her parents were millionaires. So I'm not, I don't really know what's going on there, but she's British and understands that British sensibility and, um, you know, the role of the royals and the figurehead of it all and the never respond. Um, but Megan's an American expressive actress who's not used to having to hold in and, and until last year, until she got married, could speak for herself. And to be to get married, to get pregnant immediately, to be a pregnant woman and then a new mother and dealing with harsh scrutiny that at times is skewing racist. It's unfair. It's very um, it's very much on the offense toward her at all times. And as she pointed out, she knew it would be hard, but she didn't know it would not be fair. And 
so many people are like infuriated by this, especially in the context of their experience being talked about in Africa amidst, you know, people that will never even know a morsel of their privilege. But what I was saying in the Facebook group is like, even despite that, you know, okay, we know that the privilege is there. And I think that that's a big reason why they usually do not talk and feel like they have no grounds to complain or to sue the media or whatever. I don't know all the details, but what I do know, and I just think it's important to remember, regardless of where you fall on this, is all of that doesn't negate emotional trauma that is the result of, of being under a microscope at all times. And I think, you know, well, Harry says that the every flash, every camera reminds him of his mother. And I think from his perspective, the media's relentless pursuit of Diana is what killed her. And yes, of course, you know, her driver was drunk and there's so many issues with that, um, with her death. But I do think that a lot of the events leading up and kind of getting to that point of utter, utter chaos and what door she goes out and how fast she leaves and how, all that stuff, it has to do with pursuit by the paparazzi. And while that's an inevitable aspect of the media, they really did tone down following her death. And, you know, Kate was harassed, sure. And a lot of people are like, you know, Kate had to go through with it. Why is Megan pushing back, complaining? Da, da, da. They're not apples to apples. First of all, Kate is in line for the throne, essentially. Like, William is going to be king. She will be queen consort. As Harry said, you know, brothers have their good and bad days. We're on very different paths. He, I think I think maybe it was taken a little bit too much as like, we're going our separate ways. I kind of think it's like he's quite literally on a different path. He's going to be king. He has to behave a certain way. They're not really anywhere close in line for the throne and therefore can take more risk. And I think that that's why diversity is important in any organization. It drives change. Megan coming in, being an American, not having that stiff upper lip British sensibility, as she says, and, you know, dealing with a great deal of harassment and wanting to push back. I think to her, it's less about her own personal preservation and more about kind of sending a message about standing up for yourself, not tolerating racist commentary not tolerating unethical media practices. I think that they really are people that like are principled and try to stand for things. And if you stand for nothing, Burr, what will you fall for? And I think that they're really kind of using this as an opportunity to be like, yes, we are in the royal family. We are not going to be in the, the, we aren't going to be the actual monarchs. How can we modify this role and modernize it in a way that works for us, our beliefs, our values, that sends a message of standing your ground to the world and also hopefully makes it a more ethical place for anybody who's ever in the public spotlight? And I also think, too, you know, Kate's harassment wasn't great, but harassment towards a woman of color is different and the tone is different and the necessity of standing up to it is different. And I think that uh, turning a blind eye to racist levels of harassment is actually more problematic than stepping up and saying something. I think that we always need to take a step back and think, is this wrong or is this different? And sometimes doing something different is necessary. Sometimes bringing a person who is a woman of color, who is American, who who's nothing like in any way, shape or form anything they've had in the royal family and who's to say her input shouldn't modernize it? Who's to say she is some sort of to- toxicity that is infused into it rather than being a positive driver of change? And I think Megan's all about being, you know, a change maker. That's what her Vogue issue was about. I think she actually is pretty impact driven. And 
I think that when she stands idly by as people are unfairly treating a new mother, I kind of wonder if she's dealing with PPD. I kind of thought she'd talk about that in the documentary. I felt like that's what she was hinting at when she was trying not to cry. I think that for her to stand up and be like, I'm not doing great. Thank you for asking if I'm okay," is so much ballsier than her doing what she knows she's supposed to do and what she knows won't rock the boat, which is say nothing. I think she's pretty aware this isn't going to go over swimmingly. I think Harry's pretty aware. Harry doesn't seem like he's doing well either. There's a, a, a speech of him, he gave like last week when he was talking about children. It was for some children's charity. He starts like weeping in mid-speech, talking about having a child of his own with Megan. I think Harry is more pensive. He deals a lot more with mental health-related matters. He's always been very involved with mental health, you know, without getting into specifics of what he suffers from. I do think the implications of his mother's death and perhaps the pressure of the role versus what kind of a more lighthearted, easygoing guy he is, how much trouble he's gotten in the past. I think he's always been a little bit at odds with his his role in all of this. Not to say he shouldn't be gracious, but I do think that he's had to like evolve and figure out in a way, figure it out in a way that works for him. And I think now his priority is Megan and his child. And even though his public duty is to his grandmother, his father, his brother, his sister-in-law, I think that he's operating more as a family man and is fiercely protective of his son and his wife and is seeing his very new pregnant wife very depressed or as a new mother getting harassed. It's just, I, I would hope anybody's spouse would go to bat for them. And I think Harry is maybe just giving zero Fs and is like, I'm not doing this anymore. Like, let's let's fight to raise standards for media practices. Let's fight to, you know, actively denounce racist commentary and let's protect ourselves because we do have a little bit more wiggle room because we're not going to be in the throne. And I just think it's totally fine and fair. And like what I was also saying in the Facebook group, too, it's like I, I, I totally get the people are like, why are they whining about themselves when like Brexit's happening and there's like people dying? You know, there's 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 people dying, Kim. I just think like we as with anything like that, that that response is used to discredit arguments all over the world every day. Because there's always going to be something bigger or worse going on. And as Caitlin and I talked about last week, and as I talk about often, like pain is pain. And I think this human experience is one of the only ways we're all connected as, as human beings. And for some reason, people are unable to isolate someone's, you know, the perception of somebody being in desirable circumstances from their right to have mental health issues. The oldest adage in the book is money can't buy you happiness, followed by money can't buy you class. All of a sudden, when somebody who is rich or famous seems to be unhappy, all we all our war cry is like, money should buy you happiness. You can't be unhappy. You can't complain. Like, it's it's just one of those difficult things that it's like, are there worth there's always going to be bigger things going on in the world. People that are way worse off, people that deserve the time and attention way more than any of these people ever do. But it doesn't you know, events don't operate in a vacuum. There's so many insanely important, awful things that need dire help and attention going on. But that doesn't mean that multiple events of different levels of severity can't exist and can't coexist. I guess I don't see the problem with acknowledging, you know, the importance of maintaining perspective and that it could be worse and how incredibly lucky they are. And for most things, I would argue they don't have a lot of grounds to be complaining about things that are kind of um, nominal in nature in terms of how they would affect them. But as it relates to like mental health, I think we can all acknowledge that it would be very difficult to be a human being that's a new mother in a, in a role that perhaps you tried to understand, but you couldn't really until you experienced 
and how torturous it would be to be talked shit about constantly and blamed for things you didn't do and blaming for not just disrupting a, a you know, a famous family, but a freaking monarchy. It, it, it's, it's really a lot. And I just think that like as humans, I think any of us can understand stepping into that. We don't even know how we would do. We don't know if we'd be overwhelmed. And if we fell in love with somebody and they're, you know, the way the situation you'd be marrying into was complicated. It wasn't perfect. It had a lot of perks, but it also had a lot of downfalls. Like, would you guys honestly walk away from somebody you were genuinely in love with and wanted to be the parent of your child? Like, probably not. You'd you'd make it work. And I think the she signed up for it argument doesn't really hold up because you just can't understand something until you experience it. And I think that while you know, maybe they don't deserve our attention and sympathy because of their fame and fortune. I think they're choosing to use their fame and fortune and platform as a way to promote the notion of sympathy, as a way to promote uh, that no matter who you are, you can be very shaken and sensitive by such negativity that you shouldn't stand for unethical business practices. And that it's okay to open up and to talk about your family and not keep a stiff upper lip all the time because in order to process emotions, to work through things, we need to be talking and we need to be open. And for them to be heralding that as part of the Heads Up campaign and their mental health campaigns, they need to be the ones that are kind of letting us in too. And I, for one, am appreciative of somebody that is perpetually fascinated by royals and by Meghan's transition from an American to a British royal, what it's like. And I'm grateful she's opened up. And don't get me wrong, do I lament and get frustrated and find it incredibly off-putting when people that are, you know, doing quite well complain? Yeah, yeah, because I'm human and I'm a little jealous and I'm not doing as well as they are. And I think that if I had X, then I would feel Y and I wouldn't complain and da 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 But I think in our more lucid moments, we can all acknowledge that we're not perfect as people, that emotional trauma is so more, so much more insurmountable at times than any physical thing going on in the world. And um, I appreciate them using their platform to just be like, even when things look perfect, they're not. Like, I'm not okay. This is a lot for me. And I don't know. Like, I'm a person that, like, cries when I get, like, really harsh reviews from a Taylor Swift fan who's just like, shut the fuck up. And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm just a person trying to talk to other people about a singer. Like, it's it's fine. I'm a fan. Like, calm down. What are you doing? Like, this is my livelihood. Like, I, you know what I mean? I get so defensive because it's not that they don't have the right to an opinion. It's the way it's delivered is so unnecessary and unproductive. And I'm like, email me directly. And I get upset. And I'm not saying that because that's endearing. It, it's so annoying when people complain about criticism. But I'm saying that because I feel it all the time. And it, it keeps me up at night. And it, it's something I'm trying to adjust to. And a small part of me was like, it makes me feel better that Meghan Markle's affected by it. You know what I mean? Like, I just keep waiting to develop thick skin, but I think it's maybe something you're born with and don't have or people fake that they have. And I'm just going to have to get used to a certain amount of vulnerability as it relates to feedback. And I'm okay with that. But for some reason, when other people say that they feel the same way, it gives me a great deal of solace. There's a great Howard Stern Conan conversation podcast about this too, where None of they still never listen or watch to any of their stuff because they're so um, sensitive to what people say. They're so highly critical of themselves. And for two multimillionaire magnates, especially Stern, to feel that way, I'm like, oh, OK, so maybe part of maybe uh, sensitive people are good for these types of jobs, even though they're their own worst enemy. But they have to develop tools and ways to uh, ignore the things that ultimately will be their 
demise. And for Megan, it's unavoidable because press and being a figurehead and being in front of cameras and under a microscope is her now job. And I don't for a second think that she's being, you know, ungrateful or entitled. I think she's honestly trying to have a vulnerable human moment that's quite unprecedented for the royals. And just because it's never been done before, it doesn't mean we need to be in guns blazing, accusing her of doing something self-righteous and sanctimonious. It, it, I just think that we need to take it for what it is, appreciate that they're opening up, go a little bit easier on them and realize that they're a real family with a real child and money can't buy you a cure-all, an overnight solution for anxiety, for depression, for PPD, for whatever it is. And money also can't buy you a dad that didn't betray you, a sister that didn't write a book about you, a family that you can't trust that sells marijuana called Markle Sparkle that is capitalizing off you while having no working relationship with you. Money can't buy you a redo of a situation where your dad bailed on you to walk down the aisle and sold photos of himself in an internet cafe to the paparazzi. Money can't buy you a situation when you're in a highly public uh, position and people tap your phones and your voicemail and your ta- everything you do can and will be recorded or shared. And when you're going through an intense trauma, you need to talk to people, you need to express yourself. And she probably had to close off her circle to the tiniest handful of people that she probably can't even say it all to because they're not in the same location. She probably has to wait till she sees people in person to have these conversations. I'm sure she feels like she can't trust anybody. She doesn't have a lot of sounding boards. She can't bounce a lot of things off of people because nobody understands the situation. And I'm not saying we should pity her, but I am saying we should acknowledge that in that situation, we too would be a little bit lost and we too wouldn't know how to navigate it. And to go from a free, you know, speaking for yourself citizen who can, you know, roam the earth and hang out with who you want and talk about what you want to then go to this situation with these stringent rules that in theory sound doable, but in practice are excruciating. I I just see how it happens and I see how it happened with Diana. And I think Kate was better slated for the role. Perhaps I think people have their different varying levels of, um, you know, mental fortitude as it relates to working through these types of things. I think it's more transactional for some and more emotional for others. And I don't know. I just think that like Megan is in a weird situation where she can't trust a lot of people. She's probably not the favorite of her new family. She wants to drive impact. She's trying to do things differently. It doesn't mean they're wrong. Her husband supports her, you know, unequivocally. And I think that they're just trying to do what's best for their family. And that is that thank you for coming to my tug talk. And I say that because I've been making eye contact and preaching about the royals to tugboat. And, you know, please don't think I'm being insensitive or like I want pity for very rich and powerful people. Like, trust me, I get it. I get it. I get it. I'm just making an argument for mental health here and people using their platform to showcase that even if you have X, you won't feel Y. Because I think all of us spend all of our days wishing we had more money and more power and a better job and a better whatever. But the reality is it's, it's, it's grassroots work. It's ground up. It's inside out. And we have to figure out how to make our circumstances work independent of anything that comes our way on the outside. Because it's kind of like that SNL skit that's like, if you're you know depressed in America, you're still going to be depressed in Italy. Like People think the, the version of vacation them is going to be like this new person, but it's, it's not. You're you anywhere you go. And I think all we can do as humans to be kinder to each other is just look for the best in people. Assume if they're sharing, it's not from an incredibly self-absorbed, indulgent place, and maybe there's something deeper going on that they can't even convey. And just hope that anybody using a platform to share their own hardships and vulnerability is further fuel for people to be able to open up about theirs and therefore not to suffer in silence. And 
I guess that's all I'll say. But all I'll say is 25 minutes later, Delilah would never. Anyways, okay, we'll move on um, to the questions really fast. I want to feature the first nonprofit. I think this is really, really interesting and really important and something I wasn't aware of, which is the whole point of this. Um, but this person recommended a nonprofit that she's been volunteering with for the past year. It's called Becoming a Casa, I think. And I'm sorry if that's not how I'm supposed to be pronouncing it, but it is C-A-S-A. And for ease, I'll just call it Casa. Court-appointed special advocate for children in foster care. A Casa slash G-A-L volunteer. Um, they're appointed by judges to advocate for children's best interests. The organization was formed in 1976 when a juvenile court judge felt he did not have sufficient information to make a life-changing decision for a three-year-old girl who had suffered from child abuse. They stay with each case until it is closed and the child is in a safe, permanent home. We serve children from birth through age defined by the state statute as the limit to youth remaining in care, and for some states that could be into their 20s. The volunteers work with legal and child welfare professionals, educators, and service providers to ensure that judges have all the information they need to make the most well-informed decision for each child. Data has shown that kids who have a CASA worker are more likely to find a safe, permanent home, succeed in school, and they are half as likely to re-enter foster care. As social workers change, kids move in and out of foster homes. The CASA worker remains a constant in their child's life throughout the case. Best of all, this program operates in 49 states. The only one that does not have the program is North Dakota. Becoming a volunteer does not cost anything except the donation of your time. And the organization works with you to find a case that meets the level of commitment you're able to make. I work full-time, and I'm and this is her talking, and I'm only working on one case with one child at the moment. However, there are other CASA workers who are retired who have opted for more involved cases with multiple children or even multiple cases. The work is very rewarding and has the potential to make a big difference in a child's life. I'm sorry I'm talking fast. I, I just want to make sure I get to all the information. Um, if anyone's interested in learning more, they should visit casaforchildren.org, C-A-S-A for children.org. And... Um, Oh, this is important. She said, I, I know you work with big brothers, big sisters, and one thing they stressed with us throughout training is that CASAs are not mentors. Once the child finds a safe, permanent home and the case is closed, we no longer have contact with the children. If somebody's looking to volunteer in a more mentorship capacity, big brothers, big sisters would be a better fit for that. Or later on, I'm going to talk about one called called iMentor um, that also does something similar. Uh, that's so interesting, and that's something I wasn't aware of, and that's like an incredible example of a specific nonprofit that's in every state, every location. And is so freaking important to like have somebody with consistency and with the full story, and especially if you're juggling between social workers and whatnot, and the child can't speak for themselves or is unable or too afraid to articulate. You know what I mean? Like it would be so crazy to have your life tossed around and to be separated from your family and to essentially not have a voice, whether you're too young and can't articulate it, or you just don't even have the full spectrum of what's going on and how it relates to your safety and well-being. Like that's incredible, so important. Thank you so much for writing in casaforchildren.org. I'll try to not provide my commentary on every single one of these, but I'm just like, wow, that's really important and specific, and I'm so glad to know about it. All right, now on to questions. Hey, Katie, it's Claire. I just wanted to call in to let you know that I did not eat the muffins, and I think everyone should know that I didn't eat the muffins, even though everyone in the Facebook group thinks I did. All right, say bye. Love you. Oh, my gosh, it's my little. <laughs> I was the worst big. I, did, I definitely didn't have away messages that were like, OMG, my little is so H-A-W-T. Welcome to the fam bam. Uh, but you know, we're still friends. So hopefully that worked. Uh, you know, Claire, I want to believe you. And unfortunately it's way more fun in my head. And for the element of lore to think that you did indeed eat the muffins and it's a secret you'll take to the grave. Uh, while I don't necessarily see you being in a drunken stupor scurrying from your room, like a raccoon and getting your mitts all caught up in those muffin tops. 
I do think it's funny that when you think of it from a clue perspective, you need a suspect, you need a weapon, you need a location. We know it's the kitchen, the weapons, the, the sticky little grubby fingers of a blackout person who's really hungry that has the you know coordination to remove cellophane, similar to that of a black bear. Nay, a blackout bear. So we, we all we need is a suspect, and that narrows it uh, down fairly well to about three people it could be. Because you were out that night, you lived right down the hall, and no offense, but you are the type of person that likes to mess with people, and that's a big reason why I love you, but also a big reason why I'll, I'll be suspect for eternity, if anything, just because it's become lore and it's way more fun thinking, you know, I, as your, your big, raised a little that is capable of pulling off the longest con in, in Kappa Delta history. And where I messed up back in the day is not doing my due dill. I, I hated that. Not doing my due diligence and or not messing with you more and like posting a sign outside your door that says, you know, welcome to Drury Lane. You have found the Muffin Man. Uh, side note, in England, that is that song is actually about English muffins, which is disappointing. And I um, remember Heather McDonald used to do on Juicy Scoop, she'd do advertisements for English muffins. And I remember thinking, wow, that's an incredibly standard food product that needs advertising. But I mean, that's kind of a dream, right? To like be able to endorse just a really standard product that you just think deserves more credit in the world. Uh, like this episode brought to you by extra virgin olive oil because grape seeds stole our thunder when food bloggers started talking about smoke points. God bless EVOO. They've fallen on tough times. A, it's unregulated, and what you're getting is probably garbage and not really olive oil. Um, but B, it does have a, a much lower smoke point, and it is a problem. And at a point when oil burns, it becomes carcinogenic, and we do need to be mindful of our cooking oils. Avocado is also a great option with a much higher smoke point. It's officially my time to move on to another question when I start to do what I'm doing right now. Uh, but Claire... Love you. It's fine. You ate the muffins. I forgive you. Talk a lot, Diokoman. Hi, this is Claire Hack. Um, I just wanted to, on the record, confirm and admit that I, in fact, did eat the muffins. Please disregard my previous call. Um, I'm coming clean once and for all. I repeat, I did eat the muffins. Thanks. Have a great day. That is not Claire. That's her sister, Ashley, um, who if you ever see weird comments in the Facebook group or in my Instagram, like static posts about Greg, um, it's Ashley, my the girl who ate the muffins, older sister who is in love with my husband. It's like maybe a joke, but also maybe not. I'm not totally sure what's going on. Um, you know, she likes his side part and she thinks he looks like a 1940s war hero. I mean, I obviously think he has old-fashioned good looks uh but and it's all in good fun but you know it does get a little bit weird when your friend's sister is photoshopping herself into your wedding photos so you know tbd on that one i imagine it's a great deal of stress hoarding such a deep and dark family secret like claire eating the muffins but you know you don't necessarily have to take out all of your pent-up energy on hitting on my husband <laughs> Just kidding. You know, I love you. I'm assuming your agenda here is that I'll tell Greg how like funny and good at impressions you are and how endearing this was. And then he'll get hard eyes and, you know, know that he has somebody ready and willing to kick the bucket, in which case mission accomplished, I will share with him. So this hopefully was a fruitful use of your time. <laughs> I'm sure people listening are like, what the hell is going on? This is very strange. It's all in good fun, guys. Um, You know, <clears throat> it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to drop the muffins thing. It's not that 
I just, it's like, I don't have enough proof she didn't eat the muffins is my bottom line. Um, you know, the whole creed of, of, of the sororities is not to operate in the, under the normal judicial, you know, processes. It is guilty until proven innocent. And I will, you know, I'll drop, I'll, I'll drop it. I won't, I don't accuse you anymore. It's just, you know, until I have hard and fast proof you did not eat them, I, I don't really have a choice. Like, if you're in a sorority and you're on a chair or a table screwing a light bulb into a light fixture and a sister happens to take a photo that comes across the desk of a council member, God, no, they're not going to assume you did. You were doing light chores. They're going to assume you're a slut whore dancing to Bubba Sparks, booty, 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 rocking everywhere. Go to standards, say a prayer for the integrity of your soul at chapter meetings. Of course, I will denounce it because I don't believe in agenda T's and P's. But it doesn't mean that, you know, you're it's still you're just going to be guilty forever in everybody's eyes. And for that, I'm sorry, but I think there's worse things to go down in history as then the muffin woman. And for that, we love you. And you'll always be a staple of this podcast. Maybe sometime I'll have to do an official interrogation would be a great Patreon episode. <laughs> Anyways. Um, OK, so for our first, uh, you know, we're always great to transition from slut whore Bubba Sparks into um, philanthropy. But honestly, that's the spirit of the sorority, right? <laughs> okay, so the next one is called Fountain House. It houses people with mental illness, essentially giving them a home base and skills to live the most productive lives occupants are able to. They have a new-ish college reentry program, which is stellar as mental illness often rears its ugly head in college days. This listener had to drop out of college herself due to ideation, and this resource means a lot to her, and she has somebody close to her that's been experiencing homelessness for the past four years with co-occurrence of addiction and mental illness. While he's not currently a candidate due to substance abuse, it's comforting to know if he gets clean, Fountain House is an option for him to live his best life. It's in major cities all over the country, and she believes internationally internationally at this point, and more info and ops to get involved are on the site, www.fountainhouse.org. That's fountainhouse.org. Houses people with mental illness. And uh, so long as you're clean, which I appreciate that distinction because I do think that's important too. And I love that stipulation as kind of motivation to use those important resources. Hi, Kate. I am wondering because food is one of the most nostalgic things for me in terms of bringing me right back to a time when I was a certain age um, and since nostalgia is sort of your thing, I was wondering if there are any foods or snacks or lunches that you would have, like, as a kid or in high school that are super nostalgic for you, as I'm sure many of us would be able to relate to some of them. Um, love the podcast so much. Thanks for making me laugh on my commute every day. Bye. Oh, man, do I ever. Well, there's different categories to this. I'd say my favorite type of snack food are things that are salty or fruity. Uh, on the fruit front, you know, we have our big contenders, our fruit roll-ups, our fruit by the foots. I I've talked about at length this one snack that I this is very beloved to me that I feel like nobody remembers, which is called a string thing. And it's a very long, like, string of fruit roll-up material. I don't even know what you call it. <laughs> and it's uh, wrapped into two concentric spirals that are like opposite each other. It was so, so good. And I also love fruit snacks. When it comes to fruit snacks, I do not, I do not F with Welch's. Those look and sound too healthy. What I want are the fruit snacks that have a handful of the typical translucent uh, uh, snacks in them, but also at least two to three opaque radioactive blue snacks, because those are the best ones that you save for the end. They're most often in the form of a Scooby-Doo snack. Uh, I've seen them before with sharks. You can get off brands of these, but 
Truly, the opaque blue Scooby snack is unparalleled. Um, I would argue that I liked fruit roll-ups because that you could take it when you took the cellophane off. There was that like back paper. The back paper often had like edible temporary tattoos, which is a good time. Fruit roll-ups, you could typically punch the shapes out. I didn't always get around to that. It was a lot of work, though. I do like interactive foods. By the time you punch out all the shapes in your fruit roll-ups, put on your temporary tattoos, and then you know, raise your hand, get intended to pierce through your Capri Sun, because I don't know why mechanically that's the most impossible thing until you're like 10 years old. By the time you do all that, it's a very high labor lunch and you just kind of want to get to the point. I actually would say that I think fruit by the foot is superior to a fruit roll up because there's a perception of lasting longer. It's really exciting to unroll. And the best part is when you get to the end and it's folded up and then you bite into that and it's like double fruit roll up. It's like until that point, your your bites were so sparse. You were just waiting. You knew the end was near. You're, you're, you're set up for imminent disappointment when you get past the whole foot. But that those last two inches that are folded over like are so tasty and you can really savor them. And it makes the the grand finale all the more worth it. So that's my stance on fruit related treats. Salty. I loved bugles. I liked to Edward Scissorhands, put one on each finger. Um, I wasn't as into Dunkaroos because I don't really love icing. I know I'm knowing I have a salt tooth more than a sweet tooth. I never really had like birthday cakes. I, I'm just not into like cakes and cupcakes. And I know that that's weird, but I do like cheesecakes and I like key lime pies and I like lemon meringue pies. Again, it kind of roots back to like, I like cheese, I like savory things and I like fruits if I'm going to be sweet. I like chocolate and stuff. And I shouldn't say I don't have a sweet tooth, but it's just, you know, I, I don't get excited over like icing is my point, I guess. I also have a lot of nostalgia for things that like, would make my mouth hurt. Like if you eat too many, like oats, is it oats or oats? Cheese balls. Eventually the, the, the corrosion of the top of your mouth is, is irreversible and you've, you've got to stop. Oh my God. I forgot gushers. I love gushers. I'd argue that I don't even consider those nostalgic because I actually do still buy gushers sometimes because they're so satisfying. Of um, what else is salty? I mean, well, I have a lot of like drinks that I really loved. I used to eat a lot of like before it was bottled, I used to make shift my own strawberry milk. Strawberry milk is fan freaking tastic. If you make it with like the strawberry syrup and your own like 2% milk, skim milk, it eh, doesn't pack enough punch for me. But I used to love making my own. Uh, now they sell it bottled, which creeps me out for some reason. In general, in life, I'm a huge chocolate milk stand. It's the only thing I could drink when I'm hungover. I actually drink a decent amount of chocolate milk. I go to Costco. I get the off the Kirkland um knock off horizon organic chocolate milks and I just like keep them around because sometimes like even after you work out like sometimes the chocolate milk is like all you need in life um I used to love mondos they were tall plastic drinks with an Egyptian hat that you'd have to twist off and then you would you know knock back straight like sugar water so sweet you, you could feed a hummingbird uh, similarly I loved uh their competitive drink it was called a squeeze it it was like the exact same bottle same twist off thing but it just wasn't a mondo they were two different drinks. And then they also competed with the official sponsor of, you know, summer day camps as a kid that your parents force you to go to in the sweltering heat. So you just park at the craft table and hope for the day to be over as soon as possible. The official sponsor of those type of functions are these super bright colored, again, sugar water drinks that are in uh, plastic containers that look like uh, wood barrels and they have a foil top. You know what I mean? It's like the that that in those ice cream things in the small unbranded tubs where you pull the tab and pull off the top and you eat it with a flat like paddle stick those two things are like the official unbranded sponsors of all the things I never wanted to be doing because if they were going to cheap out on the snacks it's probably not my caliber of event anyway I have a lot of thoughts on snacks because I also have a lot of thoughts on 
the you know socioeconomic implications of uh, the friends that you would go home with after school. You know, like you would your parents have would have to write a note that so and so can go home with somebody after school, and it was like a big like it really sucked when you forgot it. But then you go home on their bus, you go home, you play with their toys, you eat their after school snacks, you jump on their uh, trampoline. It, 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 I really was strategic about this, and I'd argue the hallmark of a wealthier '90s home is. I don't, I don't know if it's wealthier. I don't know how to explain it. Like, I feel like there was this type of house that whose parents not only bought them every toy in the world, but every snack in the world. And they could have soda on weekdays, which is badass. Like, this is why I always say, like, I worry about Kourtney Kardashian's kids. They are on such strict diets. They and they don't eat gluten and they don't eat dairy and or, or eggs. Like, she basically is raising vegan kids that are going to have to operate in a non-vegan, you know, world. And then your kid's going to go over to a friend's house and your friend's mom, like you can't expect everybody. If you're if your diet modifications are moral or allergic, I respect them. If they're kind of more like, you know, sensitivities, choices, I just think in general, this is healthier. I do think it's a it can be a bit much when you insist that people modify what they're doing to meet your very specific needs if they're not medical or moral. I have allergies that I will not die from. I don't disclose them because I feel like it's rude. Like I said in Caitlin's podcast, I'm not going to disclose my peach allergy and ran on everybody's pitted fruit parade. And so they won't serve sangria when I can just modify it myself. And I know that's I don't know if that's controversial, but and again, not applicable to like, you know, I'm not saying like you should eat meat if you don't believe in it or you should eat nuts if you're allergic. I just know I would be annoyed if like like rutabaga's mom was like he's a weekday pescatarian we're trying to lower our carbon footprint i'd be like i respect that but also like i have kids and like a life and like i can't run out and get you a fresh caught salmon um so you know i i don't know how that works maybe i'll change my tune when i'm a mother um but anyway i i just used to love going to people's houses and i felt like the same people that had above ground trampolines and power wheels and american girl dolls that went to the doll hospital and that got to watch TV, they probably had a TV in their room and drank weekday soda and didn't have as many rules. I felt like they were wealthier homes because the hallmark of a wealthier person in the 90s was more indulgent and gluttonous. But I'd argue now the hallmark of a wealthier person is more health and wellness. And the like barrier to entry for a lot of like fancy wellnessy things is money. And that people are much crazier about keeping their kids like clean and healthy and well. And it's a little bit more like simplistic. And we don't really like packaged foods as much as a society ever since we learned about like you know, high fructose corn syrup. And I guess it has really nothing to do with income. I just I think that specifically, you know, you got a dual income household, you got two busy parents working, I get why you would want to buy your kids snacks, and want them to be happy and have a lot of toys. I just don't think we knew as much about the dangers of packaged foods by then. And, you know, I understand because when I'm trying to get work done, I just go to the home goods and buy like every plush toy in the aisle. And I'm like, this is not great for tugboat. He doesn't need more toys, but at least I'm buying some time you know, this is not good parenting, this I need to work on. But I think that now the I would argue slash wonder if more parents are you like meal prepping and like, instead of you going to their house and they, you know, hand over the gushers, they're giving you like carrot sticks, or, you know, they have like sliced up food stations to make ants on a log. Like, I just think that people are way healthier now, as I guess my point. And um, for that, I am sorry to tell the children because some of my best memories are eating consumer packaged goods. 
This next one is reminds me of Big Brothers Big Sisters, which you guys know I support wholeheartedly. This one is called iMentor, like iPhone, but iMentor. It's a national organization with a program in Chicago. They are a one-to-one mentoring organization that ultimately empowers students to, and communities by providing college access and post-secondary support to high school students. Matches last three to six years. She's not a volunteer recruitment person. She works in operations, but she just wanted to tell us about it because of my passion for empowering young women to meet their highest aspirations. Um, yes, I love that. I mentor, I-M-E-N-T-O-R. She didn't, so, give me the website, let me look. Okay, yeah, it's imentor.org. And you, you guys know how I feel about the matching programs. Any any focused, uh, long-term, consistent attention that you can give and time you can spend with somebody to develop trust, accountability, and to not only be a mentor in helping them reach their goals, but in a, a person that's able to identify resources that can help to get them get to that point is so important. It's like they say you don't ask for um, directions from people that have never been where you want to go. I think sometimes the kids have big dreams and big goals, and if nobody around them has ever done that and they don't have the context for it, it's really hard to stay motivated. The the prioritization of the necessary guardrails to complete to get to said goal, be it college, trade school, whatever. I just think everybody needs a person. Everybody needs somebody in their corner. And if if they trust you, if you can hold them accountable, and if you can help fill the gap between where they are and their dreams, it's like the most amazing gift you could ever give somebody. Hi, Kate. It's Adrian Cooper, and I'm driving, so the audio probably isn't great, but whatever. Um, just listened to both of the sorority podcasts, and they were great. Um, I laughed. I literally cried with you. It was great. Um, as a person who was not part of Panhellenic sorority fraternity, I need to know more information about house moms or, or whatever you call them, house moms. Is this a... Is this a grown person or is this a fellow college student with like a authority complex? Second question, if it is a grown adult, is it like somebody who was a senior when you were a freshman or is it an actual mother? Like is this a grown woman? Third question, does she live there? If not, how often is she house mommy? Fourth question, do men have any kind of equivalent or no? Fifth question, when I was in college, people who were part of a fraternity got mad at you if you said that they were in a frat. What's up with that? Because it's just a shorter version of the word fraternity, so I don't really understand. Also, sixth question, at my school, pledge pledge men all had to carry around this mysterious book and they couldn't show you the contents of the book and it it caused a lot of fights between boyfriends and girlfriends where the girlfriend just wanted to see the book. Is that a universal thing or was that just at George Mason University? And also, is there actually stuff in the book or do you think it's just a blank book that they told them that they can't show anyone else? Those are all my questions for now. Love the podcast. Love you. Bye. Adrian, you are so funny. Um, you're the best. I love your detailed seven, eight, eight, eight part question. I'll try to remember as much as I can. Um, house moms differ in like the South at private schools, bigger, you know, some schools have these actual big sorority houses. I don't know if they have long leases. I don't know if they own the property, but there will be a house a quote unquote house mom that is more like a property management role. That's more like a sorority house director. Sometimes they will live there, but that is more in a case of where there is a big house and there is 
um, like someone who cooks, there's a staff, there's, you know, cleaning, there's a lot of organization. They kind of need to manage a property where a lot of people live. That can happen. Um, in our case, which is really the only one I can speak to, it was somebody in our sorority that was likely a junior or senior that I think got their, you know, housing covered if they were the person that like enforced the house rules. I don't know if we called them a house mom. I actually can't even remember now. Sometimes they were a real stickler and were like the type that was going around sniffing cups and, you know, digging through your beanbag to see if you had a watermelon cutting machete. But usually it was people that are just like, unless you're being blatantly disrespectful, all is cool. Our sorority houses were actually owned by Virginia Tech. So the hierarchy there becomes the Virginia Tech house core rules and not your sorority rules. To your point, the men who were in housing that I think that was technically owned by the school did drink rampantly. And we were big time not allowed to like, no, 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 huge trouble, which is a very bizarre double standard, which makes me think that maybe the IFC Interfraternity Council did have different rules as it relates to that than um, Panhellenic. But anyway, uh, so yeah, I think that that depends. It doesn't have to be a literal mom. I think it's a combination of students that have to enforce the rules and their life kind of sucks, but their rent is paid for, but they're technically reporting to an entity that's not the sorority. They're reporting to whoever owns the property and or a casual property management position by somebody that may or may not have been in the sorority, but is an older person that is not in school. Uh, as it relates to the word frat, we call them frats. I don't know why that's offensive, but I did receive one DM during the sorority stories era where people... Somebody said that their sorority would not let that the girls call the guys organizations frats because you wouldn't call your country a see you next Tuesday, which is an interesting metaphor that I can't say I agree with. Um, pledge books. Pledge books are journals that guys like carry around that nobody can look in that if you get caught without, you're basically like kicked out that during your pledge period you have to have with you at all times. Um, my understanding of what they are is that you have to get a signature from every single brother in the fraternity as part of what allows you to get initiated. And the way you get signatures is by doing favors for all the brothers. Some schools, you're going to have 100 plus brothers. Some schools, like, I mean, this is hazing. Not, I think a lot of places don't do this anymore, but I remember people having books when I was in school. And basically to get a signature, they're like, go get me a six pack, uh, you know, go get me cigarettes, go sit in that closet, divide up a jar of sprinkles by color while your hands are covered in honey and there's a strobe light on. Go streak the drill field go break up with my girlfriend for me. Like it can be anything. And they, some people F with you. Some people are nice and you have to get all the signatures in order to do that. And there's probably repercussions if you don't agree to do the specific task. Also in those books is a lot of ritual. I think a lot of secrets, a lot of information about brothers. I, I don't know. Cause I've never seen one. Um, they're so sacred, but that's my understanding from my friends that were in fraternities of what they're for. It's so ridiculous and hazy. Um, but yeah, I think it's just to, a, get to know the brothers. B, see if you're like game for stuff, which I don't really agree with. I, I, I am not here for forced fun and I am not here for like goofy pranks. Like, no, thank you. Um, and I think thirdly, it's to kind of showcase responsibility that you, you brought it, you remembered it, you haven't lost it, and that they can trust you with the safekeeping of all of the secrets of the fraternity because it's so important and relevant to the rest of your life. <laughs> Hope that answered your question. Hi, Kate. Uh, my name's Paige. I'd like some advice on how to better manage my emotional responses, specifically crying, to, you know, stressful, upsetting, or frustrating situations in the workplace. I, you know, I've always been a crier, you know, when I'm happy, when I'm sad, but especially when I'm stressed or frustrated and I don't feel like I'm in control. Recently, I had to deal with a mismanagement on part of my boss toward me. 
when we were able to keep most of our communication to email, it was great. But then when she wanted to talk in person, it required everything within me to keep back tears, which meant that I didn't get to say everything that I wanted to say. I'm not usually the kind of person who's afraid of confrontation. It's just that I'm a major empath and a feeler, and sometimes I'd like to be able to keep a cooler head when I'm trying to stand my ground. Any advice that you have, I'd really appreciate. Thanks. Bye. I totally understand this and relate to this. Um, I definitely am a crier. I, over time, it's gotten better work-related um, because I think you just gain perspective and realize a lot of work-related issues don't really have bearing on the things that matter to you, whether, you know, even just breaking it down to, like, physiologically, like, I'll think through, like, will I still have uh, food and water and shelter and my loved ones and my safety <laughs> if I make it through this conversation? Yes. Sometimes I can, like, think my way out of it. It's not always realistic, so you kind of do need some tangible tools to kind of back yourself off of that cliff. One is, I think it's important to identify triggers. I think whether we realize it or not, there are specific types of things that set us over the edge. And it is important to take note, like literally like iPhone note, whatever. When it happens, is it when you feel a smidge guilty? Is it when you know you're so right and the other person's not listening? Is it when you feel misunderstood? You know, there's different um, types of scenarios you can walk into that you may be able to identify are or aren't more likely to trigger you and make you physically upset. Um, so I think it's always helpful when something happens behaviorally that you're not happy with to write down what it was and what the root cause was, because you're going to forget and then you're going to overgeneralize wh why you behave the way you do and when. So try to target the triggers. I think in general, like if you can step away, absolutely do. You are totally entitled to step away in the middle of a tense conversation. It is a little bit weird. Um, so there's a couple things you can do. You can. Like, I'll literally sometimes put the tongue, my tongue on the roof of my mouth, like do the kind of gestures I would need to do to stop sneezing. Um, you can d use like trigger points, like for migraines, you can squeeze the part between your index finger and thumb on your um, hand, like palm, that is used to kind of also mimic the texture of how rare uh, red meat is. You can, if you squeeze that, you, it's supposed to help you help with headaches, but it also is kind of a weird distracting trigger point that can help with crying. Um, but what I do more often than not when I'm upset and I'm trying not to be and I need to get a point across and I need to focus is I do Navy SEAL box breathing. And what that is, is you breathe in for four seconds, you hold for four seconds, breathe out for four seconds, you hold for four seconds. And it takes enough concentration where it gets your mind off the thing you're doing, but isn't, you don't have to think so much that you A, look like you're breathing unnaturally or B, it, it separates you too much to the conversation where you're zoned out. But I do think especially when you get upset and have the <laughs> crying and you need and you need to calm down, the box breathing is super effective. Anytime your heart rate's up, box breathing is super effective. I think Navy SEALs use it because when they're in like high intensity situations and their adrenaline's pumping and their heart rate like skyrockets, they need to calm themselves down. Um, and I find it to be incredibly effective. So that's a great thing to do, too. So I think it's a combination of identifying like the triggers and situations, knowing what you're going into trying to make a game plan beforehand. But if it's an impromptu crying situation, all you can really do is like breathe and try to focus on, you know, some facial and physical things that kind of help you from physically crying. But if all else fails, I'm gonna tell you my big secret. I've been doing this in seventh grade. And I don't know if I've talked about this before and it may not apply to you, but in life, if I need to get myself out of a situation, 
if everything ranging from just plain boredom and like wanting to roam the halls and like check out what's in my locker so I can grab some goldfish out of my lunch all the way to being in a situation where like I'm fundamentally uncomfortable and need to leave, but don't feel like I have an easy out that doesn't make me look weak or weird or emotional or uncomfortable. Um, and here's what I do. I take out my contact lens, not deliberately. I start rubbing my eye excessively. And that also kind of will make it look like my nose is like, you know, the weirdness cry face is a function of having an eye issue or an allergy attack. I'll do it for like, you know, not hard, but visibly. And usually the person kind of notices like, are you okay? And I'm like, sorry, no, I had like something in my eye. And then I'll kind of put my hand over my eye and tap out my contact with my thumb. And I'll be like, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. Like, this is a horrible timing. I just need to pop back in my contact. I'll be right back. And if, if you pop out a contact, you're working on it under a time crunch where if the contact dries out, it's unus- unusable. This is a risk you take by deploying this tactic. Um, and you can do it in a group when it's not just a one-on-one conversation. I've done it in class many times and I like have it on my hand. I'm like, oh my gosh, my contact fell out. Do you mind if I run to the restroom? And like, what are you going to do? You can't deny somebody their vision. I'm not a con artist. I'm not a monster. This is just a last resort thing. And I think all we can do is not beat ourselves up about the way we are and not get upset with ourselves for getting upset, but we can find tools and ways to modify our behavior to make it work in the scenarios in which it needs to. There's so many aspects of your life where being incredibly empathetic and sensitive is going to work in your favor. Unfortunately, the workplace is not always one of them. Do power poses. Take deep breaths. Do what you can to prevent the tears from flowing. It does make a professional situation. It changes the dynamic. It makes it uncomfortable. My theory is that focusing on being relentlessly pleasant is the only way to drive people crazy when you're in a tense conversation and negotiation and you're not guilty. Um, Just like smile, nod. And even if you're saying something incredibly harsh of the tongue, like kind of smile and stare Stepford wise while doing it. It drives people absolutely insane. But if all else fails and the priority becomes you collecting yourself, you getting clarity of thought, you stopping the tears, you coming back anew. If this is a really important conversation that there's no comfortable abrupt out in the middle of the contact thing really is effective. And I don't want to give away all my secrets, but you know, I hope this helps. And if you don't wear contacts, you like fake a sneezing fit. You know what I mean? Like just do something interruptive and then they don't even want you there till you're back and, and refreshed. You know what I mean? But anyway, also like truly, it's really not a bad thing to be sensitive. I totally get where you're coming from. I think that there's probably some underlying root causes and, and dynamics with the people that you're interacting with that are maybe uh, setting you up to a certain point of baseline uh frustration and then small things are tipping you over the edge and as much as you can work through the root causes and not this like the symptoms are the crying the root causes are why are you getting to that place where it makes you feel like you need to cry and i think it's important to pay equal attention to both love you thanks for calling this next one is called camp hope it's a summer camp for hiv positive children ages 7 to 16 organized by aids foundation houston Um, They're looking to expand programming to include non-positive siblings of campers and 17-year-olds for a Teen Leadership Institute, and they serve over 100 children living with HIV from Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Oklahoma every year at no cost to campers or families. She's a volunteer counselor, and the counselors like her, the campers' medical providers, work in conjunction with the AIDS Foundation Houston to raise the funds needed to make camp happen because it costs roughly $1,000 to bring each kid to camp. You can learn more about Camp Hope by visiting AIDSHelp.org or email her directly at B-A-C-H-A-B-A-U-D at gmail.com. That's AIDSHelp.org, B-A-C-H-A-B-A-U-D at gmail.com, and it is called Camp Hope. Thank you so much for writing in. 
Also, I'm not going to get through all of these, uh, but rest assured if you sent one in and it's legit, um, I'm going to like have a constant like docket I'm, I'm moving through as I do these episodes. Hey, Kate, I'm calling to ask for advice regarding a cheating situation. So my husband and I are friends with another couple and the uh, boyfriend shared with my husband that he's cheated on his girlfriend multiple times and he doesn't seem to have very much remorse or regret. Um, He brags to my husband about it and it's beyond just like you know, a random one night stand at a bar, but going on trips and sleeping with a different woman every single night, um, having threesomes, um, and his girlfriend is significantly younger than him and totally unaware. And every time we spend time with them, I just can't stop thinking about it. And um, I think he's disgusting and looking, seeing her look at him with these adoring looks and um, knowing that he's cheating on her, um, it just sucks. So I guess my advice or my, my, my request is for some advice. How would you handle the situation? I'm not very close with her. Um, and, you know, I really would like to tell her the relationship that we have with this couple, um, which, Again, we're not that tight, so I don't know. Um, I think my husband would also be really put in an uncomfortable position. Um, but, yeah, we'd love to get your read, and thanks for all you This do. is like Bye. a tale as old as time impossible question. That is no – it does not have a singular right answer. Um, it is so dependent on so many variables that I will try to walk through succinctly, and I'll provide a recommendation – but for anybody out there going through the situation, I think it's like it's risky on, on truly all fronts. And to be caught in the crossfire of information you didn't really want to have is, is it's it's not ideal, but it becomes an ethical dilemma that you actually like, I think, really do need to think through. And I could argue for either side, depending. I think the first question I have is, OK, so if you're friends with this couple, if your husband's friend was with this guy. He sounds like an absolute proud, entitled, cheater, monster human that I want taken down. And I'm surprised your husband wants to be friends with him, not because you can't be friends with cheaters, but just because typically in a sociopath, the thing I look for is discretion. You know, like it it almost creeps me out that he would be so upfront about cheating, especially because your husband knows the girl. If, if, If your husband was like a stranger or a coworker or somebody that was out of the context of his normal life, it's one thing. But to actively give somebody that information, to volunteer it. And to just like act like you can move forward is kind of odd. And if I were your husband, and I don't know if you can ask him to do this, I would get him to elaborate. What I mean is if your husband, like next time they hang out, if he brings up cheating or something, like your husband plays dumb and is like, wait, so you guys have an open relationship? I didn't realize that. And then when he's like, oh, no, we're we're like we're in a committed relationship. I think the normal response from anybody would be like, Oh, well, wait, dude, like, have fun. Like, why why be in a relationship if you want to be with other people? You know, I think there's a way you can kind of be like, oh, my God, live your life, like be on his side, but also kind of uh, do some discovery in terms of like, what's the, like, what's really going on? You know what I mean? Because 
if it's a case where this girl is just oblivious and he's just an asshole and he just like cheats for sport, it's very different from like they have an open relationship or there's an agreement that this has been going on or she know you know what I mean like you just you never really know. I can't imagine that's a situation, but um, in the situation of the former where he's just like willy nilly telling everybody that he's cheating, your husband's probably not the only person that knows, and it's probably not even that easily traceable to you depending on how you decide to go about this. But first, I think it's always important to, you know, everything about the situation and don't make assumptions. B, I think it's very important you factor in safety. And I say this because when people do such horrible things to people they allegedly love, and especially publicly and openly admit that they do these things, I fear that they are fundamentally um, unsafe people. And in the event, God forbid, there is a domestic situation going on in the event He's a violent person, an irrational person, an impulsive person, any of the above. Your husband will probably hopefully know better than anybody, but you just want to make sure both the person that spills the beans and the girlfriend who confronts him are not actually in a situation that is dangerous. And if you feel it's not dangerous, I would challenge you in terms of figuring out next steps. These are the questions I would ask myself. Well, actually, I would put myself in her shoes in the exact situation if it were reversed. So if your husband cheated on you and she knew and you found out some other way and found out that she had never told you, would you feel betrayed? I think there's certain situations where you'd probably be like, well, you know, like I get it. Like I get somebody that's kind of a way to gauge your level of closeness, because if you could be like, well, no, I'd probably understand that she didn't want to insert herself because we're not that close. I think that's very um, telling. Secondly, if if you put yourself in her shoes, I mean, like, like, like we all, if if our partner's cheating on us, it's we all want to know. Like, we want to know. But I do think who it comes from matters. And if you were her, would you want her to be the one that told you? And what would that be like? What would that feel like? What would your follow through be? And I would argue in the case of a, an acquaintance that you don't have a ton of loyalty to. Even if you say, please don't tell your uh, your boyfriend, I'm telling you this, like, please keep this between us, please, you know, I don't want to ruin husband's friendship, whatever. You have to be totally aware that they can and will throw you under the bus and say you're the one that told them. Because what's going to happen is that she's going to go tell her boyfriend and he's going to be like, this is a lie. Where'd you hear this? He wants to know the source. It's going to be super defensive. Her concern at that point is going to be like her, about her relationship, about seeking truth, about proving a point and about, you know utilizing anything close to hard and fast proof she has so she's she's gonna say who <laughs> say who told her and i think that if you put yourself in that situation you realize you would probably do the same thing because my priority in the heat of that moment would be like no i have legitimate proof no this is legit don't gaslight me and pretending this isn't happening like i know and but unless you say that the person on the other side of the argument is like if if you're not going to tell me what this source is or whatever you know that like i'm just going to say they made it up i'm just going to say they lied um so I would not pr- expect any sort of protection of your uh, identity upon telling her. Um, but also, I think that if you I think for anybody, if you're going to be the one to tell somebody something, I think there's this um, misunderstanding that you can drop a bomb on somebody's life and just walk away and not get caught in the collateral damage. But the reality is the person who tells her is going to have to be is, is now involved and they're probably going to be followed up with. They're probably going to have to provide some sort of proof for evidence or follow up information. 
And they're probably going to need to be a person that's there for support because you're one of the few people that probably knows what's going on. And if you're not the person that's willing to be there and to stand your ground and to follow through with the guy and to hold her hand through an incredibly difficult process, I'd argue you maybe aren't the one that should be telling her. Can you send like an anonymous email or something like, yeah, I guess. But, you know, that doesn't really give somebody enough ammo to think that like something legitimate is going on. But it's just hard to say because this, if this guy slept with so many people, it like could be anybody. So I guess that's A, untraceable and B, she can do what she wants with it. But I don't know. It's, it's complicated. The other thing I'd ask yourself is, is this, do you feel this intense need to get this off your chest because you care about her or because you feel guilty? And I think sometimes we don't even realize that um, speaking, the, you know, truths that are incredibly damaging to other people and that insert ourselves in situations that are none of our business. Um, the the only person that's really benefit from me, benefiting from you doing that is you because you just want your conscience cleared. And you want to be able to walk from the situation unscathed. If you're doing it because you care about her, then theoretically, you should be the person that's, you know, willing to support and hold her hand and like follow through and acknowledge their level of involvement with the situation. You're just not going to be able to say it and leave and, and nothing happened to you, your husband or their friendship. I just think that's the reality. So unless your husband really doesn't care, unless you're ready and willing to let it go. If I were you, I think that the best case scenario would be to tell somebody that she is very close friends with that can have a heart to heart about it with her. And that will be with her and supporting her as she addresses the situation because a very close friend, a best friend you'd be more loyal to than like an acquaintance. And if my best friend came to me and was like, Hey, I'm worried about you. I heard X, Y, Z from a few different people, you know, for the, like, I would never ever say something if I didn't think this was actually serious I really think you like, you know, need to say something, need to break up them, whatever. They can provide their counsel based on what they know of the situation. I wouldn't throw my best friend under the bus. I, my loyalty would be to them and not to the asshole I'm about to break up with. I, I, you know what I mean? Like, I would sincerely trust her and I would sincerely act like play it a little bit differently if I was protecting her and her sources. But also, I think that you can at least tell somebody who is very close with her and then they can decide what to do with the information based on what they know is best for that person because they know that person better than you. And even though I think in this situation, you have to be totally comfortable that in, like regardless, this could come back to you and your husband. But I do think this gives you a little bit more of a buffer um, in terms of it coming from a person that's not necessarily directly tied to you. Because if he told your husband so casually and so in passing in so much detail, your husband's not the only one that knows. So this could come from a lot of people. Also, if this guy is this bad, I have a feeling her, her best friend like has a pretty solid idea of what's going on and maybe hasn't you know, reached a catalyst that's really going to make her say something. And even though you're putting somebody else in the compromising position of having information they maybe did or didn't want and then they have to figure out what to do with it, I think it's responsible on your part to have somebody who genuinely has the best interest of the person um, making that call and delivering it and being there to support them. And, you know, I just think it's kind of like a balance of like, it may come back to you, but it's a little bit harder to trace. And she probably will eventually get told, but at least you're not the one that made a decision that's going to heavily impact the life of somebody that you don't really know very well. You don't have a lot of context of, and they're going to have to make a large deal of assumptions about. In my experience, I have been involved in this sort of thing, not me personally, but somebody I'm very close to found out that like another guy, the guy they were dating was cheating with other girls and introducing them to his daughter and like so on and so forth within hours of each other, like had several 
people he was saying like he loved and were his girlfriend or whatever. Two of the people that were dating him found out and kind of like banded together. And there was a third that he was more serious with. And they were like, well, we'll just like reach out, tell her what's going on. Like we, you know, we had a reaction to be supportive of each other and mad at him, whatever. They reached out to the girl that was currently dating him. Uh, and it, it backfired. She was like furious. She was like, uh, he told me you guys mean nothing to him. He explained the whole situation. Like he lied to her, said those other they said the girls were crazy, sided with him and then told him. And it just you know what I mean? The whole situation like blew up. What usually happens is eventually they come around and they're like, hey, sorry. Yeah. So do you mind just like telling me a few more details? Because I think if they're like with the guy at the time they reached out to or whatever, like your instinct is just to be so defensive and to not like rally with other strangers who are telling you really difficult information. So it just it just doesn't always work coming from somebody that you're not close to because you just don't you never understand like the motive or whatever. Who who the heck knows? Regardless, I'm not sure of the right answer. Just make sure you have all the information you can make sure you're doing this for her and not just so you feel better. I would, you know, be interested to know why the friendship means a lot to your husband or if it means anything to you guys. Your who knows your husband might be the one that isn't like that attached to this friendship anymore. And honestly, this might be his out. He'd be like, oh, yeah, sorry, my my wife overheard and she was really upset. And like, I'm not going to tell her what to do. Like she felt like she needed to protect so-and-so. I don't know. There's like a way to be like, yeah, sorry, dude, didn't mean to destroy your relationship. And then like you you fall, you just kind of like go part ways. But if it would if it would betray your husband, your partner needs to come before this situation, obviously. Um, and then in which case I would do something a little bit more uh, indirect, like, you know, Obviously, the anonymous email can work, but I just don't know if like that's going to carry any weight and or I don't know how I would feel if I got that. Like, how would you feel if you got that? It would feel very like stunted. Like, well, I want to like make moves and make a decision, but like I don't really have any details and I don't know who to contact. And like, how do I know this isn't a prank or somebody who's out to get him? And then like person could kind of like convince you that this wasn't true. I, you know what I mean? I just think it, it it almost needs to come from somebody who is. A, reliable, be close to the person, will follow up and support them, and C, has nothing to lose by telling them. I'm not exactly the beacon of maturity when it is, comes to this category. I was just reminded in the Facebook group that I did passive-aggressively uh, Venmo one of my sister's exes uh, drink money to take out karma because I heard she was a real bitch because he had Venmoed me drink money and I didn't want his dirty money after we found out he was like a creep and an asshole and a cheater. And... Um, I think I sent him several transactions. I forget of exactly what, but he, that was the only line of access I had to him. So I did what I had to do. Uh, you know, I'm not great with this. <laughs> I want every lying, cheating, egotistical, misogynistic, gaslighting son of a bitch to go down. I want women to band together and I want to goodbye Earl them. And by that, I mean assassinate their character because we don't need to be committing crimes but these situations are so maddening. They're so thankless. They haunt me to my core. I feel incessant rage for, rage for every one of my friends that endures this shockingly, disgustingly prevalent behavior of men who think they could take advantage of people, disrespect women, and lie through their teeth until ultimately people are silenced because we're too scared to confront them. We're too scared to take them down publicly. It, it, this is what. This is why being a woman is impossible. Like, this is why it's so frustrating when there's, you know, not even specific power dynamics involved with a certain you know, workplace or social hierarchy in your life, but just even general, the, the, the notion of safety, you know what I mean? Like, I, like, I know that there's, you know, Instagram's like she rates dogs and stuff. And there's like some ways people put people on blast, but like, I really genuinely wish there was a way to put men on blast that met a certain level of criteria that were like provable, like screenshots or whatever of communication 
So A, we can prove to people the prevalence of this like backwards sexist misogynistic style that men are still operating in in some places and shine a light on how women are spoken to and why like it makes us it makes it so hard for us to speak up sometimes. Like, I just don't think that people realize how alive and well a lot of this derogatory backwards language is and how how many people like just have not gotten the memo. Like, we don't talk to people like this anymore. Like, we should have never, but for the love of God, especially now. And I just, like, I don't know. I want to protect other women. I don't want other women being, like, tricked and sweet-talked only to in- end up in the same position so many other women did. And these guys, the, like, and beyond just protecting and, you know, helping out other women, I want to take these motherfuckers down. And I just don't know how. I don't know how. Um, If you guys remember in May, there was a particular situation that I put on blast, tagged Bumble, tagged Whitney Hurd, the CEO of Bumble, and she was so disgusted she reached out. Like, like, but I can't do that every time for everybody. I just, I, and then I kind of backed up because I was scared for the safety of the person because if they were the person they were dating, it was going to be obviously traceable to her. If the person got booted off Bumble, it was kind of, it, anyways, I could keep going. But I guess all I'll say too is if you're in Cincinnati and you're dating a guy named Scott in the suburbs, you know, please reach out. I'll tell you if it's it's the one that's a monster sociopath that you need to break up with immediately. Same goes if you're dating a Joe in Chicago or a Dave in Kentucky. I'm not going to put people on blast. I'm not going to destroy people's lives or whatever, like whatever. Um, but I am 100% here to destroy their personal relationships if I have access to the people that they are currently deceiving. So, yeah, I'm breezy. And moving on. Thanks for your question. Probably wasn't helpful. Just think of it from all angles. Put yourself in her shoes and think about how you would want somebody and who you would want to be telling you and move forward accordingly. But also, why is your husband friends with him? He sounds awful. (laughs) I can't get over that piece, too. (laughs) Anyways, I'm sure your husband's lovely. There's, you know, everybody has good reason for anything. And that's my whole point is let's not jump to assumptions. And I'm the first one to be guilty. But anyway, love you. Thanks for calling. I appreciate you uh, wanting my counsel in the first place, even though I am highly unqualified to be giving this sort of advice. But I just well, sometimes want all of us to know things aren't as myopic as, as you want them to be. Very few situations with relationships, especially socially, especially with inserting yourself in somebody's relationship, are going to be black and white. And I think that makes a lot of people avoid the situation altogether. I appreciate you having a conscience and caring, um, even though you're not super close. And I think that's like step one is just being an empathetic person who wants the best for other people and wants to protect other women. That's awesome. And I'm in no way telling you to like hoard it to yourself if the situations don't all work in your favor. I just really do think it's important to prioritize your your partner's wants and needs over a person you don't know very well. And I think the like the only way to kind of balance that while still being able to have the potential of getting through to her is to go through a friend or to somehow deliver it anonymously. But I think the second part is is going to be harder to be more effective. But anyways, love you tons. Quick nonprofit plug. I'm always very interested in um like rare diseases and more uh, niche medical issues because those are, you know, even though the numbers are smaller, that makes it all the more difficult for them to get any advocacy and for medical research to be um, assigned to the specific problem. And I know I'm the first person when there's like GoFundMes and all this fundraising, I'm like, where is it really going? Like, I'm very suspicious of the Susan G. Komens of it all. Just because there's so many operational expenses, so much overhead, you know, there's a lot of hefty expenses. And when you look at the share of actual money dedicated to research aimed toward a cure, it's never as high as I want it to be, though. There's probably a lot I don't understand. Anyway, um, this one is called it's a foundation called Move for Gen, two ends. 
and you can read her story on the site. Um, she found a small sarcoma, parentheses cancer, on her foot. Her only treatment was amputation. After doing so, she realized insurance only covers one prosthetic. But if she wanted a running blade uh, to play, run, enjoy life with her kids, it was on her. If she wanted a waterproof foot to swim, to go to the beach, enjoy life with her kids, etc., it was on her. Luckily, she has an amazing support system that raised money, and she gained some support from a prosthetic device company, but it infuriated her for others who wouldn't be able to afford the prosthetics they need want. So she started a foundation to grant prosthetics to other sarcoma survivors. Amazing. Go to moveforgen2ends.org. This one says, Hi, Kate. I'd love to nominate one tail at a time. Oh, you must be in Chicago. For your ad space on the Kate Lila episodes, they are nonprofit dog rescue in Chicago. There you go. <laughs> I fostered six dogs for them over the past few years, and they are amazing. Here's their website, onetail.org. O-N-E-T-A-I-L.org. Um, oh, she included photos of the dogs. She's a fostered at one tail. So cute. Uh, one tail at a time is awesome. Paws is awesome. There's so many great dog rescue places. And at one point I trained to like, I, like I was a dog walker at Paws and I like went to this training and you have to get cleared for like the certain to work with certain levels of animals. And I was only cleared for like a small lap dog or may, maybe like kittens only. It was kind of like, wait, what? But I think I maybe was too flighty with big dogs. I got pushed over as a kid and I do have this like gut instinct, like anybody's dog, not rescue dogs to be like, oh, when they like approach me because when when a dog can touch your shoulders I do get a little spooked um so long story short it's great to volunteer for those organizations they usually do require a little bit of training but like nothing better than hanging out with dogs okay next caller hi Kate this is Jenny Lynn long time first time long time listener first time caller um in one of your very first podcasts you talked about finding a good guy for Kelly and I wonder if anything came of that and if it didn't I was wondering if we could kind of make it like a priority within our Facebook group. Um, if there's one thing that I've learned about uh, through my True Crime podcast that I've listened to, it's that we should never underestimate the power of a vaguely specific demographic or group of people. Feels like she's here for the right reasons. And I just, I want to be part of a Sleepless in Seattle moment for her. And essentially you because it's your podcast that we do like the happening for it anyway i love the podcast i hope you answer my question okay thanks hi thanks for calling and also your voice cut out a little bit so i did have to chop up the message i believe you're making a streisand reference in funny girl but i could not tell um no this is so sweet i mean obviously i think kelly's the best the catch of all catches and well i have two separate thoughts about this one um well, for context, in one of my very first episodes, I had said, like, if you have like a, a brother, a cousin, a son, a friend who who is eligible and looking for a gal like my fantastic sister, how great would a meet cute be like Sleepless in Seattle style over the airwaves? Um, nothing tangible has come of that. It was kind of a it was like kind of a long time ago, like almost two years, which is kind of crazy. B, there's been a couple of really nice people who have reached out, but either she was like moving. It was location based. It was always kind of like you know, never really worked out. And I think the re unfortunate reality is like, I mean, she lives in Virginia and, you know, ideally, it's, it's kind of hard to start a relationship outside of that. Um, but that's really nice of you to follow up. And if Kel I mean, honestly, I'll take Kelly's lead if she's up for it. And I love what you said about like the power of like a vaguely specific group of people, because I totally agree. And yeah, I am. I mean, I'm always down for a meet cute. The funny thing, too, is um, and this is totally separate from your comment because you're following up on something I said, and I so appreciate it. And Kelly will too, because, well, actually, let me back up. 
I now, okay, Kelly, you'll have to, I think at the time, <laughs> I think at the time Kelly was dating somebody horrible who had just done something pretty bad that I knew listened to the podcast. And I think I was being like, kind of, I, I didn't ask her permission. And I think I was like, hey, anybody want to date my super hot, awesome sister? Because like, clearly the person listening to this, you're out of the picture. I think I was trying to prove a point. It was probably around the time I threatened him on Venmo. Um, but, you know, a, a girl's got to reach a guy however she can. <laughs> and um, I mean, the thing is that my the sentiments there, I want Kelly to meet somebody great. But if I can use this platform for anything, my God, a public avenue in which to make some a-hole jealous. So I want them to know that they missed the opportunity of a lifetime blowing it with my sister. You know, that's what I'm here for. I'm very mature. Um I so I so appreciate your sentiment. We'll get on Facebook. We'll have to hear from Kelly, see what she thinks. She and I have very different taste in men, so she'll have to speak for herself. She does tend to like more athletic, like built, muscly dudes, whereas I'm kind of like into like, uh, you know, lumber sexuals or like intellectual types. Not that you can't be both um, into the woods and smart and or work out a lot and smart. But you know what I mean? If I'm going to like if I'm going to, you know, focus on stereotypes. Uh, I like guys to either look like they've been in a cave for five years or, you know, studying for their Ph.D. Kelly likes people that look like they might talk to you about leg day. She does not want to go to leg day, but she's fine if you do yourself as long as you don't pressure her to be your gym buddy and, you know, into like a fitness couple situation. I don't think she's interested in that. Um, but, you know, I'll let her speak for herself. <laughs> I, I think the gist is like good heart, nice person, respectful, great family, wants the same things in life fun. You know, it's like the, the, the basic things I think we all want are fairly similar. And I think the hard part about online dating, too, is so much of it is chemistry based and so much of chemistry and like the energy and, and sparks between you kind of like override a lot of the things you think you need on paper. And it's just a confusing world to live in. Um, but so to close out that, thank you for your question. I'll talk to Kelly. We'll see what happens. I definitely uh, made that shout out from a semi-selfish place, but I am nothing if not fiercely protective of those who I think only deserve good things. Uh, totally separately. What, when, you, when I was listening to this message, I was thinking, wow, okay, almost two years ago, it's kind of funny that I did that. Even though I think it, I had an ulterior motive, I actually was doing the thing to her that I don't like that people do to people. And I think I've really thought more about this the past couple of years in terms of, and Jess, Jess Sturdy and I talked about this on her Under the Influencer in April. And the thing I do want to say about my sister, don't get mad at me, Kel. Um, you know, I feel like so often people will harp on if you're single as if like, oh, we'll find you someone. He's right around the corner, all that stuff. But the thing is, my sister, if she wanted to be married to any of the, you know, dudes she's been out with that were like just OK, she wanted to be in a serious relationship with, you know, just any old person she could be. It's not like a down and out situation. I think sometimes we even the people closest to people actively ignore the the notion of a person's relationship status being a product of active decision making and not something that we by default should assume they are missing out on or lacking and i think the way we talk to people is so often skewed to assume that if they're single they aren't happy if they're single they're desperately looking for somebody if they're single they need to be set up and it's just not the case and i think when we have those conversations in passing it, it makes somebody too aware of of what's perceived to you as a shortcoming. And in the meantime, you're ignoring asking them about all of the other incredible things that they're filling their life with. 
Because I'd argue like an, an, a reason Kelly is single is because she's chosen to enrich her life with so many things. Like all, she has an incredible job. She spends so much time with my family, my parents, my you know nephews and niece with her friends and her friends' kids. She like makes people Easter baskets. She's always making baked goods, bringing them to work and friends. She's just like always going to like a little league game of like some offspring of a person she knows. And she is just like such a kind, talented, busy person that actively cares for so many people that it frustrates me whenever she will kind of and she's so nice. I don't even think she cares. It, It frustrates me when people seem to speak in a way like, when are you going to settle down or like, when are you going to stop moving or switching jobs or like. And I think, too, maybe I'm sensitive because I've experienced a bit of this, too, like, uh, you know, leaving a pretty stable job, taking the road less traveled, having a little bit of difficulty adjusting and navigating my way through it, trying a series of seemingly disjointed activities as a career and having to always over explain myself. I think that sometimes when you make choices that look different from people around you, it's seen as something you're doing in response to things like not going your way or like it's like something that you're you're veering off the path that you're and people assume you're like you're trying to get back on it. And it's kind of like, well, no, you're completely discounting our career decisions, our decisions to pivot between careers, to move cities. I mean, I was like such a drifter living. I lived in I had like six or seven zip codes in a five year period. She's lived in Virginia, Kentucky, Chicago, then back to Virginia. But the thing is, it's not because she can't find a place to settle. It's because she's actively deciding to move closer to her goals based on the opportunity she gets. And like everybody should be doing that. And what a blessing it is to be able to do so without being tethered. And I just think that like we need to be careful how we talk to people. And again, she's never said a peep about this to me. But like I know people are well-meaning, but when, you know, we don't see someone often they're like, so are you seeing anybody? And she's like, not. And then like the conversation doesn't go anywhere else. I'm like, well, what about all the places she's traveled and things she's done and the stride she's made in her career and all the interesting, you know, things she's been doing and places she's lived? Like, I just am like, what, what, like, what, what does that have? Why does that have any bearing on like, you know, putting your finger on the pulse of to see how somebody is? And I know people don't, the people aren't trying to be rude but like, I just, I don't know. I just always want to remind people, myself included, to like never discount that maybe somebody's single because they want to be and never discount all the incredible things they've filled their life with, regardless of their relationship status. And I think that like, instead of um, treating people who experience vast amounts of change as if it's something they don't want to be doing consider for a second that they see where they are and they look at their goals and they live their life in a way to fill the gap. And if a job or a city or whatever it is makes you a little bit closer and further progresses you to what you want, go for it. My God, that's what we should be doing. The last thing anybody should be doing is sitting around twiddling their thumbs, waiting for something to come their way in the relationship category. Because even if you're busy, even if you have stuff going on, things happen. You're always just like single until you're not. And I just don't think any of us can choose where and how we find our partners. I And I also would argue that the later in life you find them, the more blessed you are because you'll be in the honeymoon phase when we're all sick of our spouses. And I think that like it's a really cool thing to be able to meet your person when you're a self-actualized person. I know I've talked about before, you know, when you're in a relationship when you're younger, you, you either grow in parallel and you or you grow apart. 
And I even think that that's not static in terms of, you know, in general in life. I think like year by year, decade by decade, it changes. And I think that when people get together when they're young, inevitably there's going to be a degree of tension and adjustment as there is with most relationships. But in my head, and maybe I'm romanticizing it, starting a relationship in my 30s, it would subside because I there there would be no ounce of me at this point that would fake it to get somebody to like me more. And I definitely did that in my 20s. And I think that when I was younger, my focus was, do they like me? Do they pay attention to me? But now it would be more like, take me as I am. I wouldn't try to change other people and I wouldn't let them try to change me. And if the situation was cut off, it was cut off and I'd move forward knowing I was going to have a great life anyway. And I think the level of despair I felt when I was younger was so much deeper because I didn't really have the confidence, the wherewithal, the the, the perspective to understand that that sector of my life wasn't absolutely everything. And I often talk about how I feel like my career took off when Greg and I got more serious because I am kind of like a romantic and a lost soul. And the, as I say, owner, founder, proprietor of the Lonely Hearts Club formerly. And I think I didn't realize how distracting the dating and relationships piece of my life was because I was always so heartbroken and how it seeped into my energy in other areas of my life. So it's like I'm so grateful for for my relationship, for providing me a level of stability that I think my personality type really thrives when it has. And that's something I didn't even notice till I had it. So I'm not at all discounting the importance of a relationship. Mine has meant all made all the difference meant the world to me. But I I was so different when we met. And fortunately, our our values, uh, you know, what we want in life are very similar, even though our personalities are polar opposites. But I do think that like a lot of the growing pains we had now, like we get along so much better now than we did when we first started dating because it's just like a more volatile time. And anyway, I don't even know what I'm talking about. Oh, I'm just saying, I think that like, you know, I, I just hope that people aren't getting down if people see, make it out to seem like they need to find a partner or they need to themselves stay in one place so they can be found. Like, no, that's just not how life works. At one point, all the stars will align. Things will work in your favor. Work in your favor. You'll meet somebody great. You'll have a really positive experience, and you'll forget about all the days when you didn't. And I just think, like, as much as you can move forward with that confidence, that like you're such a catch. Anybody would be lucky to have you, and anybody who hasn't wanted to have you up until this point, it's not a personal function of who you are. It's a dynamic function of who you both are. It's it's not one puzzle piece's fault that it doesn't fit in the other puzzle piece. They both have to be shaped to to be compatible. And, you know, especially when people blow you off on like first dates, it, it, people take it so personally and like it's not personal because they don't know you personally. And the criteria that they're judging that date on the very surface level things that aren't are typically things you can't change and expectations and barriers. They just the guardrails almost that they have for like who they want to be with, period. And it's just like not personal, just like how I wouldn't date somebody that goes to leg day. You know, it's like I don't blame you for that. It's just like not my vibe. Um, so anyway, I'm rambling. But I just wanted to, you know, A, thank the caller because that was so nice. B, say, yeah, I mean, that'd be so fun. I always want, you know, my I always want ev- people I love to be with great people. And if other people out there who are like minded and who get it have the same, my God, by all means. But and then secondly, just some thoughts I've been having lately that I always want to reiterate on the podcast, especially as we go to holiday parties, Thanksgiving, we have baby showers, bridal showers, weddings, 
you know, there's a lot of things to talk to people about, and it doesn't always have to be about their relationship status. And when it comes to super personal things that might be touchy, might close people off, let them take the lead with telling you about it. In the meantime, have a small series of go-to questions you ask to have meaningful discussion that won't make somebody feel like they are having to be needlessly introspective at an otherwise joyful occasion. Okay, next caller. (laughs) First, I'm going to tell you about the Atlanta Hope Lodge. Um, This person wrote in, she works for the American Cancer Society in Atlanta, and uh, the Atlanta Hope Lodge is a very special place to her because a cancer diagnosis can feel very scary and getting the right care means having to travel far from home at times. The cost of traveling to and from treatment creates insurmountable physical, emotional, and financial burdens. They believe in finding and paying for a place to stay, and that should never stand between a patient and the care they need. That's why Atlanta's Hope Lodge was built on Emory University's campus 21 years ago. It's a free, high-quality lodging facility that makes the best possible cancer treatment more accessible for patients who travel to Atlanta for treatment. They're home away from home and have proudly served more than 14,000 patients and caregivers with over 300,000 nights of lodging. We estimate that the lodge has saved families more than $42 million in accommodation costs. Not only do they provide lodging for free, they provide programming for patients and caregivers to take their minds off of things and relax. They have game nights, a weekly graduation ceremony for patients who completed treatment makeovers almost every night of the week. Local companies or groups provide a home-cooked dinner. We also provide transportation to and from cancer treatment so patients do not have to worry about battling Atlanta traffic. Most patients stay with us for 31 days, but the timeline varies by patient. I recently met a patient who stayed at the lodge for four months during his battle with you. God, I just, uh, I don't know. That I, I'm reading it fast because I want to read the entire description, but it, that was incredibly descriptive. And I just think about like uh, being in that situation and the importance of it not feeling like a hospital, like not feeling so. I don't know. It, it, I, I just I think that's awesome. And I think that's important. And I love that. Um, the point of her message is uh, adding they the renovation and expansion of the Hope Lodge is urgent. They have to add new guest suites and update them and expand the communal kitchen and dining areas and uh, add a new space for immuno immunocompromised patients, update their temperature control systems, all these things. Obviously, there, you know, quite literally needs to be a very hospitable environment for people enduring different conditions. And there's different interactions that different patients at different stages can have with different things. And it makes a lot of sense that this takes a ton of logistical management and financial contribution to maintain it and renovate and keep it running. So they need funds to keep the doors open. And uh, you can read more about the Atlanta Hope Lodge and donate at cancer.org slash Southeast Giving or contact her at amanda.miles at cancer.org. Um, I don't want to do direct fundraisers or GoFundMes, but first things like this that are so important to so many families in, a, in an area that um, need money to keep going. My God, especially if you're in the Atlanta area, whether time or money, I do think it's important to call inten- attention to it. And um, thanks, thanks for writing in, Amanda, and thanks for all you do working for a nonprofit. I'm sure that can be gratifying at times, but very often is a tough job to be in. And I can't even read your description without feeling upset. <laughs> I'm sure the idea of having to turn away families or not be able to keep the doors open is soul crushing. And I hope, uh, I hope people can help you anyway. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> you know, what's so funny. I mean, I was trying to think when somebody asked me that crying question, I was like, why do I feel like there was a very recent time I was like, you know, putting my tongue in the roof of my mouth and like doing things to like make myself not upset. It's when I was recording with Caitlin, because as we talked about, like, I, I really um, believe in uh, uh, mitigating your emotional response to somebody who's articulating their emotional situation. And uh, 
that was so hard to listen to. And she's so articulate and it, it was so moving and so sad. And I couldn't, I can't even understand, uh, the resilience she has coming out of that situation and I I don't know I was just like I can't like it was very hard for me to like not uh get upset and cry and it but it had nothing to do with me it wasn't about me and that's why it doesn't you you do need to control it at times and um my point is like I can't like I'm so sensitive I can't read that like I can't read anything I can't do anything I can't watch a commercial like it's hard for me to (laughs) to uh yeah, it's hard for me to not react. So, girlfriend, I understand. Whew, okay, moving on. This is a this is a little more lighthearted uh, question. Hey, Kate, I feel like we're friends. Um, so I'm calling in because I am so intrigued by this whole like influencer um, language and idea of like what an influencer is and. And what do they do? So I have a lot of followers on Instagram and I am really struggling with like putting myself out there to get brands to represent me or to, um, you know, get people to be interested in me advertising for them. And I just was curious if you had any advice for that or what um, is the next step for this influencer marketing in general. Thank you. Hi. First of all, we are friends. Duh. Um, secondly, this is the, I like already can tell you this is going to take me a while. Um, <laughs> not to say that in a daunting way, but like there's this is layered and I don't know enough about your specific situation to speak to you directly. So I'm going to kind of speak in general so this can help, you know, the broadest number of people possible or just even give you my thoughts about influencers, because there's the piece that's like, OK, you know, what is an influencer and how do you get to that point and how, how do you best work toward it? When do you know you are one and how do you not kind of uh, uh, feign this level of, of impact on your audience that is monetizable to an advertiser? And how do you know it's, it's really legitimate when there's so much, you know, so many shortcuts and cutting corners happening these days, a la Kylie Jenner's loop giveaway that costs 15K per entry and the winner, there's like 75 enter and people that uh, are part of the giveaway. One person wins like 30 grand plus some like suitcases. The the margin is insane. So if somebody is out there like making over a million dollars just on fees so people can get a couple hundred thousand followers overnight and you only retain like 30 percent of them. Um, well, no, you probably lose about 30. I'd say you probably lose about 30 to 40 percent of them. But like they're shit followers. They don't want to be there. They're, it's it's honestly a mild form of fraud. And it drives me insane. Sorry. See, I already went off on a tangent. But um, I take it that you are very uh, you know what's up and you're very well intentioned. And if you're already there on Instagram, like that's so awesome. And um, reach out with more info so I can speak to you directly. I just don't want to offend you if I'm like talking about who is and is an influencer as if it's directed toward you. Um, because I think. Well, I'll separate it. So first, I'll talk about like influencers in general. And secondly, I'll talk about my experience pitching brands and what hasn't it ha- has and has not worked. I think the most important thing to remember is influence is not just some just something you decide you have. An influencer is not something you decide you are as if it's a job you're applying to like a barista. It's something you become because your audience decided it for you. And it's a product of a natural slow build of a brand, a blog, whatever it is over time that earns their audience's trust and engagement through their recommendations, through their communication of, of their values, through 
um, consistency, uh, content quality. There's, they slowly find people that identify and, and align with their values and interests and therefore become influential on their behavior and spending habits. It's very slow. It requires a ton of effort, a ton of consistency, and there's really no way around having to put in the work. And I'd argue that at a certain point, influencers deserve to monetize their platform because they've put in the effort and they've put in the equity. I kind of see building an Instagram platform as sweat equity. Equity inherently is going to produce a return later on, even though you're working on it in real time unpaid, but it does pay off because when people, what happens that cheapens, why everyone wants to detach themselves from the title of influencer is when people are doing gimmicks and giveaways and trying to cut corners. And it looks so, it's so transparent and so frustratingly vapid that it becomes like a commodity available for purchase by the self-important. If you're going to do all that crap and not have a real audience, it's essentially a form of fraud. And if you want to do it right, it's going to take a really, really long time. And the unfortunate thing about brands is that you can't tell somebody why you're interesting. They have to be interested in you. Tugboat's snoring. Um, And the way they get interested in you is by hearing about you, is by slowly recognizing your name over time, is by having people refer you. It's by your consistency and your commitment to being unique, adding value and providing quality that people can rely on that will make people can share you and continue to share you and drive a level of reach and frequency where enough people have heard about you that eventually they'll come around, follow and perhaps you'll influence their behavior. I start, I'm try, I start by saying that not because to say you're guilty of any of that, but because I think that whenever people talk about being an influencer as an occupation, my concern is that there's not an understanding of what that word actually means and who is really successful at it. I don't know one person who is an influencer that is is well liked and you know financially successful that sought out to be one. They all did things that were for fun, that were on the side, that were free of agenda and through being like an authenticity is such cliche advice, but through doing more of what they loved and finding people that aligned with their interests, they over time became a person that was able to recommend things to people because they're trusted. Because like any friendship, any relationship, uh, duration and consistency matters as it relates to loyalty. And I think that is too often overlooked. And oh my God, that's a loud snore. Tibby. Um, I guess my answer, sorry, as it relates to brands is, you know, ask yourself, do I legitimately have influence? And is it a product of a slow burn over time and gaining the engagement and trust of a subset of people that align with my values and interests? Or do I just have people here that I want to leverage that I'm not that involved with and I don't feel super connected to, but I feel like I should be monetizing my platform? If it's the latter, you need to bridge that gap and you need to figure out what value you can be adding for your audience before you think you have the right to make money off of them. And I should probably clarify, like when I say influencer, my like my end goal isn't to sell isn't to do sponsored content as a primary revenue stream. I have podcast sponsors. I'll talk about them on Instagram as an extension. I've pitched a lot of brands for podcasts. Um, but now that I'm thinking about it, I feel like those are very, that is different from typical sponsored content. 
but I can tell you what I've learned. You can work as hard as you want on your pitch um, to try to make yourself sound interesting, but it doesn't matter if the brand isn't interested in you. And how people become interested in you are A, if you communicate the value you can bring to them. And because if they haven't heard of you, it's kind of like, well, what's in it for me? Like, I, like I've not, I owe nothing to this person. There's a dime a dozen influencers. You sell yourself so hard about how great you are. If I haven't heard of you, it's utterly meaningless. Think about going to your friend dragging you to a concert of a band you don't care about. Like, if she got dragged on stage, it would, like, change her life. If you got dragged on stage, you'd be like, get me the hell out of here. I don't know who this is, and it's not personally meaningful to me. So when you're pitching yourself, it's a little bit, yes, about who you are. And I think it's an art and a science. You need to have data about your audience, so your follower number, any insights from Instagram insights, any demographic data you can provide. Calculate your engagement rates by, you know, adding likes and comments and dividing it by your following. Do an average for your most recent nine posts. Calculating story engagement by, you know, views, average views over your following, whatever. All of that stuff. Have data. Have the have the quantifiable piece. So, uh, you know, you can blow smoke all you want and say how great you are, but the the numbers are the first thing that really matters. So, have a media kit that concisely communicates the size of your audience, their engagement level, and any relevant metrics to the brand advertiser, whatever that you're sending it to. The other piece of this that's really helpful is if you have conversion data. Now, that's not easy to get even for me with podcasts. I don't have, people aren't sending me back the return on like vanity codes and coupon codes. Like I don't know. All I know is if they ever advertise with me again. But as it relates to sponsored content and getting some numbers for a media kit, what you can do is join an affiliate program like Amazon Affiliates. You can get accepted very quickly. I think shop style is pretty easy. Reward style, like to know it's a little bit more exclusive. But regardless, if you can get yourself in any kind of affiliate program and start recommending things you really like and start experimenting with talking about brands and products and doing swipe ups on those affiliate platforms, you have ownership of, of the conversion data. And then you over time can watch what does and doesn't work test and learn, and then use that data to pitch yourself to brands down the line as you go further along. Another important thing to note is to do swipe ups, you do have to have 10,000 followers. But anyway, that's the that's the science piece. The art piece here is that, you know, what I said earlier, it's it's not about selling yourself. It's about communicating how you can bring value. It needs to be an even exchange of value. If you're going to use my, you know, platform, my audience, my products, whatever, what are what's in it for me? And you can communicate that to an extent with data. But if you don't feel like you have that kind of uh, hard and fast data yet, you try pitching a really unique idea. Try pitching something that, you know, is uniquely you that'll work with your audience that's synergistic with their brand. You know, explain to them why the brand is important and meaningful to you and don't blow smoke. Like, don't send a ton of canned emails. I don't really even respond to those because I know I'm just part of a mail merge. It's pretty transparent customized to a degree where it's not completely inefficient, but it feels personalized, like flattery will get you everywhere. If I've never, if I don't know who this is and they're sending me an email and they like start by being like, I'm obsessed with your book. I'm like, oh my God, stop. But you know, be mindful that when you're flattering a brand, you're not flattering the person who owns the thing. Like I'm different because all my stuff, I take a ton of pride in. I'm not sure like how much pride in the, you know, formula of Dove deodorant, you know, an associate brand manager would take. So if you're like, oh my God, Dove lifts us up where we belong. All you need is Dove. They'd probably be like, okay, I don't know. I'm just like trying to like pay off my MBA loans because I was told brand management was a 
lucrative and fulfilling business to get into, but I'm just really like trying to afford a nice lifestyle for my golden doodle. But anyways, yes, communicate value, communicate why the brand is particularly special to you. Don't make it too impersonal. Have the data that you're setting. This is good to give yourself the best chance of success if there's not an awareness of who you are. You know, worst case scenario, you don't get a response. Who cares? You're unscathed. Best case scenario is they respond. What's more likely to happen is you become on their radar. Anytime, you know, in any, in any advertising venture, there's a strategy of reach and frequency. Reach is to reach the most people as possible. Frequency is, you know, the idea of the more the higher number of times a person interacts with your brand or product, the more likely are they are to retain the brand, the message, what it does, and ultimately convert to purchase. So I think that you have to think of yourself kind of similarly with how to get on people's radar on social media, because for me, I, and I, I know this is anecdotal advice, so take it for what it is. I mean, what I just said about data and, you know, communicating value, that's fairly universal. But as it relates to like, it, just kind of like being patient, waiting and building and networking. I know that's like a frustrating piece of this. But when I tell you that, like, nobody responded when they had never, ever heard of like me or my content or brand or podcast or whatever, like nobody cared, even when I tried to really flatter people and like, I would work really hard and pitch very specific stuff that honestly were kind of good ideas. And I'm kind of surprised people would ignore them. And I'm still surprised that when you tag brands in stories and you have a platform and you're talking about them positively and you see that they've seen it and they don't even throw you a goddamn heart. I'm like, I'm advertising for you for free. Like, at least if you've seen me do it a couple of times, cough to heen, you know, isn't it better? And like, I'll like, I will see um, like Dallas Cowboys shooters. <laughs> this drives me insane. A lot of people got paid to promote Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders making the team. I talk about them all the time. I tag them all the time. I tag DCC. I tag the actual Dallas Cowboys. I tag CMT. I'll tag the production company. I'll tag Kelly McGonagall Finglass. I'll tag Judy Trammell. I'll do the, the whole song and dance. And Judy did respond once, bless her heart. And Melissa Rycroft did respond once, bless her heart. But to actively ignore a person who's already highly engaged with their brand and who has a dialogue with their audience about it that could sneak in organic mention of it and then to just like use an agency to target randos is hysterical to me like if you work at a brand for the love of god pay attention to mention in your stories i get that people do that a lot with cosmetics because they want free stuff and whatnot but like there's so much organic advertising opportunity and i think there's a lot of mismanagement of how to leverage social media uh mentions buzz sentiment etc to translate into your influence or marketing strategy neither <laughs> neither here nor there to wrap up the uh, last art piece of this in terms of what's going to be the most effective and what's been the most effective for me is consistently making content, trying to make unique content, trying to engage with different influencers that I either have a connection with, a mutual friend, uh, whose stuff I like, whether I DM them or whatever. And you kind of slowly build this web of a network where people, you know, you'll engage over DM with your favorite influencers you know, you'll, they'll start to follow you. You, they mention you in their story, their audience comes over, you mention them on, uh, you know, at times you mention people that you really like, they'll see it, maybe they'll start following, you know, a friend tells a friend or somebody that's an influencer tells another influencer. And like, honestly, it's for me, it's been like two years of, of trying to build out an online presence. And the joke is, I genuinely do feel like I put a, I, I put a concerted amount of effort into Instagram, because I consider it part of my job. Am I trying to be an influencer that you know, sell spawn con is my primary revenue stream. No, 
Am I trying to build a community that's connected to me, connected to my values and interests, and that hopefully will ultimately, if I've you know provided enough value to them over the years, they'll have an element of investment in my career because we're kind of in this together. Like, yeah, my angle of toward influence is less about selling stuff and more about uh, people identifying with me because then anything I create or make, they will potentially want to support. And I, but I want to be creating, I want to be writing, making books, whatever, whether it's radio, podcasts, whatever, like my commodity is me now in terms of getting your, you know, products picked up. If you're a business, your work picked up, if you're, you know, some sort of other creative professional, it, it, it even though it, see, it sounds ridiculous, a following is very important in many industries people are in. And even though content wise, my strategy is that I don't have a strategy about what it is. I talk about what I'm interested in that day and like what I care about, because again, I find the commodity it's, I'm just going to continue talking about like what interests me and see what it does and doesn't land. But I do have a strategy in terms of, I take it seriously. I commit to posting every day. I respond to as many DMS as I can without getting carpal tunnel or feeling like I'm ignoring my husband. I actually legitimately do make it a point to like digitally network, so to speak. And I think it's made a huge, huge difference for me. And uh, there's no like guidebook other than like, I genuinely follow people and watch their stories that I like. I genuinely will absorb what they're up to. I'll follow up with them. I'll reach out. I'll comment on their stuff. I'll tag them if I like something. Maybe they'll be interested or follow me back. Then maybe they'll slowly watch my stuff over time. Like it's this weird game of like, you just kind of have to keep putting yourself on the radar, but not in a way that like that person like Diary of a Fit Mom does where she's the bottom comment on every goddamn post. Like, no, don't. Th that's the thing. It can't be robotic. It can't be forced. Like. You honestly just have to commit every day to like spending some time being you and putting stuff out there. And you just you never know, like the the just for like an example of like the importance of like being yourself and not overthinking what's going to get engagement. Um, the highest number of DMs I have ever gotten is when I said that even if they are all dirty and even if I have plenty of clean, large tablespoons. I will go out of my way to take a dirty small spoon, teaspoon, clean it up and eat with it because it's just a more desirable surface area for yogurts, pudding, ice cream and the like. A tablespoon is a last, last resort. And I was just kind of talking about like how dark it is when you've only got tablespoons in the drawer and um, never more, never seen had more response in my life. It crushed my DMs. Any, anybody that ever messaged me before that I was never going to see the light of day. And it made in Greg and I were like both laughing so hard. I'm like, why you just do not know and that was the most passing thought that i just put up and so i don't know i guess my point is i just talked way too much i hope those were helpful tips i just think people are unrealistic about like how formulaic it is to be an influencer or to get brand deals because you know you can define an influencer whatever way you want but the entire point of the term is that it builds and um I don't know a single influencer that is financially successful and well-liked that was trying to be one. It's kind of a byproduct of what they were already doing to develop their own online presence for whatever reason. And then people trust you enough and ultimately want to buy your recommendations, products, whatever. I think the least, the only thing you can do is, you know, have another job, live your life on the side, slowly build, work on your content, find what's unique about you. Try to gain more awareness in general about who you are and your stuff. Make it super shareable. Uh, pitch brands in a way that communicates data and value. And then 
you know, just consistently keep trying. And over time, I think you'll see things start to accumulate and people will start to be more receptive to you and you will notice. Um, I'm not an expert and I do not have a huge following by any stretch. This podcast's following is bigger than my Instagram following, um, which it's like, follow me, geez, come on, guys. <laughs> but I, again, my strategy is less about follower numbers and more about like community engagement, personal investment. And then I kind of get a little spooked. Like I love when followers come over and that's awesome. And I'm not going to pretend like I don't want them. But when there's a pop in followers, it's a bit spooky how many trollish DMs you get and how people without context just like hate you. And then I, that's when I kind of like want to curl up in a corner and sometimes I like go on private and I just like I'm like, I want to keep this between us because um, I really do like love the audience that I found and established. And I really do interact quite a bit and they mean a great deal to me. And, um, you know, people joke about like Instagram being meaningless if it were gone tomorrow or whatever. And I'm like, oh, God, no, like this is a huge driver in my business. And I don't think anybody should be ashamed to say that because it means you've worked to to make it one because it's a tool you can 100% leverage to your advantage. Your eggs shouldn't all be in it because we don't ultimately have control over the platform. You know, obviously use it to convert people to your website, to your podcast, to your products, whatever, to make sure they can find you if all should come crashing down a la Vine. But, um, you know, I don't think it's lame at all to try. I don't think it's lame at all to put a deliberate amount of strategy into Instagram. We should never, ever be accusatory when it comes to women being strategic because there is an element of business and strategy as it relates to social media. But my entire point is it's an art and a science and you've got to do a little bit of both. You've got to test and learn. You've got to wait it out until you're not shouting from the rooftops. I am an influencer. Rather, you right before your eyes without having to do that much are watching other people be influenced. Okay, guys, I'm going to try to... <laughs> And this before two hours. Um, thank you so much for listening. I am going. I have a few more questions. One's an interesting one about um, a friend in a bad relationship. There's one about Hallmark Gate, about what Greg's doing while I'm raging on Instagram. I think there's something about MLMs, Taylor Swift, American Girl dolls. I'm gonna answer those on Patreon. If the ones I can get through. Again, I kind of just save all these, and when I can do episodes, I do them. I plan on getting to all it. it at some point um but you know can't there's some that just require to be more long-winded than others and thanks for your submitted nonprofits. i am i promise i will read yours as long as it's legit and not a personal fundraiser and um as we get through episodes i hope you liked this episode thank you so much for listening i feel like in the spirit of delilah i need to be closing out with some light soft adult contemporary radio hits so i'm gonna do that play some of the songs that in the 90s really were the soundtrack to me pensively staring out a rainy window on my way home from volleyball practice, just hoping that at some point I too could love someone tonight, just like Delilah was telling me to. And it makes me quite grateful for my sweet husband and my snoring dog who is taking up the entire surface area of my office chair. I am sitting on the corner. I have no lumbar support, but it doesn't matter. He comes first. So grateful to all of you that love this podcast. I love you back and who trust me with your counsel. And I hope any of some portion of this was useful to somebody and i hope you'll get involved with the nonprofits. and i hope everybody will have an awesome weekend thanks for letting this be the full episode this week wanted to change it up it was good for my soul and uh go to patreon.com slash be there in five i'm going to post this week the rest of the q a uh i've already recorded some of it that i couldn't fit in here and um also uh, subscribe rate and review five stars means the world please follow me at be there in five Look for Be There in Five's Totally Casual Breezy Facebook group. Wish me luck. 
in New Orleans this weekend. Never been. Very excited. I don't know. Buy my book. I'd love that. Twinkle Twinkle Social Media Star. And honestly, my head's spinning. I'm sweating. I'm like stressed because there's so many outstanding light contemporary adult hits specifically from the early to mid 90s that specifically gave me very high unrealistic expectations about love. And my head is spinning, spinning with the lyrical and melodic stylings of of Phil Collins and Rod Stewart and Richard Marks and uh, Celine Dion's early stuff and Peebo Bryson, Peebo fucking Bryson gang. I mean, that guy, that guy crushed A Whole New World and Beauty and the Beast. What's he up to now? What, what, justice for Peebo. I, I've asked this in previous episodes. I ask it now when I revisit his, his voice. He's a true crooner and I'm, I'm worried. I'm frankly, I'm worried. Is he dead? I don't know. Let me look. Hold on. Oh, thank God. Active 1976 to present. We're good. And uh, unfortunately, I'm not choosing to honor Peebo tonight. Maybe another time. Honestly, I am so jazzed about these light adult contemporary hits right now. I just want to like DJ a full set. What would be a huge bummer of a party, but I'd have a great time. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to send you off today. I, it's been, there's so many songs. Like, honestly, I've been sitting here like, okay, like what? Okay, if, let's imagine I'm listening to Delilah and she, like, what comes on next? I Like, have you ever heard Delilah and then not heard Rod Stewart's Have I Told You Lately That I Love You? So that borders on cliche, but a song that I think is so Delilah, so 90s, yet I don't hear it enough, is is by a little band called Foreigner. And it is called I Want to Know What Love Is. And, you know... I hope this one's not overdone, but it really builds and it's really beautiful. And it's just it, the ending. is just woof. It, 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 these are the types of songs that made me think that uh, th- the way men treated women, like the baseline when you're like, you know, seven, eight years old, you're like, yeah, well, obviously when you get married, it's like Richard Marks right here waiting wherever you go, whatever you do, I will be right here waiting for you, whatever it takes or how my heart breaks. I mean, Journey, I come to you with open arms. I Bruce Springsteen's Secret Garden from the Jerry Maguire soundtrack. These songs, in addition to Boys to Men and All for One and the more R&B skewing male uh, romantic singers of the mid-90s, like, I wonder if this is why I am the way I am. Since I've uh, had a heartbeat, I've been a, a member of the Lonely Hearts Club. And it's not because I didn't have a wonderful family and parents that loved me and gave me everything I needed. No, it's because some of us are just romantics that operate from a deficit. And Something, uh, but we're okay. We're okay with our melancholic tendencies. And these love songs speak to a part of us that both appreciates how sometimes songs about love are equal parts, incredibly sad, but uplifting all the same because the impending thought, the threat of loss is so deep and dark and it looms despite our most committed of circumstances. And we can't help but both feel joyful in the moment, but fearful of its imminent departure, be it death or otherwise. And it's just hard to live in a world where you have to deal simultaneously with the joy of the present and, you know, something slipping through your fingers by circumstances you can't control. It's hard being me, guys. (laughs) I gotta go. Okay. As always, let me know your thoughts and I will let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear. Bye.